This is Joseph Gervasi. I'm here with Mark Anderson. We are recording this interview at St. Stephen in Washington, D.C. on June 27, 2015, and this is part of Loud Fast Philly. Um, brief introduction for those who didn't read uh, my little synopsis of the interview. Uh, this interview is outside of the main focus of the project because it's going to be dealing largely with uh, Washington, D.C. issues and Mark's life. Uh, but I put this in the context of people who have had uh, an influence on folks in Philadelphia, and there are a few other interviews in the series that are, are similar to this and, and some forthcoming. Um, so let's go. Uh, Mark Anderson, um, you are known as a D.C. person, but you are not originally from D.C., so could you tell me where you were born and when? Yeah, I grew up in Sheridan County, Montana, which is the county that borders on North Dakota and Canada in Montana. Grew up on a farm and ranch there. It was 15 miles to the nearest town or paved road. It also happened to be on the Fort Peck Indian Reservation. Were your parents farmers? Yeah, my parents were the children of Scandinavian immigrants uh, who had come from, on my dad's side, Denmark, uh, and on my mom's side, Norway, to Homestead. Uh, mm -hmm. They happened... So they were first generation. They, yeah. yeah, so they happened... They, just happened to be coming uh, to the Fort Peck Indian Reservation. That's where land was available. No one had any clue, of course, coming from Scandinavia, right, right. the history involved. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but yeah, that's that's where I grew up. My brother still runs the farm and ranch there. Now, what year were you born? 1959. Okay. Uh, what was it like for you there growing up at that time? Um, extremely isolated. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would say there were some things that were really great about how I was brought up and where I grew up. Um, part of it is that you are around nature a lot, and uh, thanks to my dad and my mom, I, I learned to really love nature and, and animals. Um, a little ironically, because, you know, my dad's a beef rancher, and mm -hmm. so he would put your heart and soul into raising cattle and watching out for them, but, you know, the, it's particularly for certain of the cattle, you know, the end was the slaughterhouse, mm -hmm. so, uh, but nonetheless, you know, there was a real, s some really strong values that I inherited from them, and I certainly feel lucky to have grown up there, uh, doing manual labor, uh, being connected to the realities of what makes life possible, which is, you know, the sun, the rain, the ground, you mm -hmm. know. Uh, that's where our food comes from. Um, having said that, it was also very difficult for me, particularly as I grew up, um, you know, becoming a teenager, because the horizons were pretty narrow. What I was looking at was a lifetime of really hard, backbreaking manual labor. And it was not something that gave me great joy. I just didn't have the passion that my dad did or my brother did for that life um, and uh, and I also just didn't really fit in because one of the things that I took a stand on early was that I wasn't going to join in uh, with the drinking and drugging kind of rituals that were popular well, were so you're talking about up to teenage years then. yeah teenage yeah. years um, because there were certain crowds that existed where I grew up. I mean, I had, I had to be bused 25 miles to my high school over dirt roads. It was, you know, hour and 15 minutes in the morning, hour and 15 minutes at night riding a bus. 
but I was I was kind of uh, an outsider because on one hand I didn't drink or do the other party stuff that. What was it did. about that 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 repelled you in some way and, and you know pushed you away from that? It's a good question. Um, it just didn't make sense to me. I didn't understand why people needed to do this. Um, as I went a little further in my teenage years, I saw my peers, uh, you know, in certain, sometimes making fools of themselves, but other times just destroying themselves, making terrible decisions. Um, my brother uh, is a recovering alcoholic and drug addict. Um, it, I have two sisters, both of them, um, well, one is still recovering, one is uh, deceased. Um, and we also grew up on the reservation. I mean, not that, that the reservation is, there's a plague of alcoholism and drug addiction there. I mean, it's something that the native populations just weren't used to, and it was part of the genocide that was visited on them. Whether it was intentional, whether it was accidental, nonetheless, it's decimated them. Uh, having said that, though, in the working class in general, as I've encountered it, it's a plague. Um, I remember as, like, I must have been about... I don't know, maybe 14 years old, and I was working with a neighbor's son, um, like mucking a stable, meaning you're, you're throwing shit out, in, mm -hmm. out, out of there, cleaning it out so you can bring more animals in, and they're not walking in shit. Um, and I remember him talking about this big beer party he had been at the night before, and talking about how wasted he was, and, and so forth. And I clearly wasn't responding in the way he was expecting because at a certain point he was like, uh, um, you know, well, why aren't you, uh, you know, you're not saying much. I said, well, I don't, I don't drink. He says, oh, that's stupid. <laughs> Trust me, you will. Um, and I just remember like, hey, little kid, you know, <laughs> when you grow up, you know, you'll be smart like me. I remember being really pissed because I was like, fuck you. <laughs> What the hell you think you're saying? It's like, I don't think what you're talking about is that smart. I actually need reasons to do things. I'm not going to do this just because other people do it. That's dumb. Mm -hmm. Now, sadly, um, this person later was an alcoholic um, and unfortunately you know, beat his wife and did other terrible things when he was, when he was drunk and eventually got you know, into recovery. But there was that kind of thing. I mean, you just see the, the destruction around you. And if you're a strong-willed person like I was, who needed reasons given to me for doing something rather than just accepting it because other people did it, and so, of course, well, it must be cool. I just, I just didn't want to do it. And the more people pushed me, the more I just said, fuck you, let me be. This is before Straight Edge. Mm -hmm. um, this is part of why when Straight Edge came along, I just like threw up my hands. and was like, hooray. Someone's actually said it very clear and very concisely. I actually will have an edge over you. You think you're better than me for doing this? I think that's not true. I have the edge because I'm not fucked up. Mm -hmm. Now, that can slip into righteousness and you know, self-righteousness and become pointless and you know just as destructive as as you know the the drinking or drugging 
would be. But uh, but it was still it was tremendously important, and that was one of my fights. However, if you don't, if you're not in the party crowd and you're not in the jock crowd, and then of course, what was another major thing that was key in the working class community I grew up in? Well, religion. I mean, what I said at the time was that some folks went to church on Saturday night, and then some folks went to church on Sunday morning. Um, Saturday night being the bars, of course. That was the main social gathering point, if it wasn't the church. And I had major issues with both, and ultimately, uh, even though I grew up in a very, well, maybe because I grew up in a strongly religious household, I was... Was it Lutheran? It was Lutheran, um, a pretty conservative brand of Lutheran. I mean, I grew up in a country church. Remember, I said I was lived 15 miles from the nearest town of Paved Road. The church I went to was another eight miles out into the country. So it's just this small country church in the midst of this vast prairie expanse. And there are many good things about that church. Um, and I remember as, as a kid really loving the sense of community I felt there. I mean, it was really, my family was focused on one thing, really, and that was work. Um, but if we had a social life, it was focused around the church. Um, but then as I went, got older, again, I tended to ask uncomfortable questions. And just as with my friend, uh, you know, the drinking person, uh, questions were not that welcomed in my congregation um, and so at a certain point I said I don't belong here and uh, I was forced to go through confirmation by my parents which is ironic because you know, for people who aren't part of religious the, this particular religious tradition they'll be like who cares but in the Christian tradition confirmation is when you have become an adult and you have made a conscious decision to be part of the church and you go through a process um, needless to say it becomes a bit ironic if you're forced to go through confirmation because wait wasn't it the point that I chose to go through confirmation <laughs> but I was forced yeah I don't think most 13 year olds get much of a choice yeah no I was forced and it was a very powerful experience and the day I, my mom has a picture and you know, she's very proud of it the day I was confirmed um, and that was the last Christian ceremony I participated in uh, willingly, you know, for over two decades. Um, so if you've done your math, you've discovered that I have now eliminated all of the major social groups that existed in Sheridan County. So I was pretty much on my own. Well, it, living in such a cloistered community, uh, were you aware of alternative ways of living? Because when you're questioning all of this behavior from these people around you, did you see, in effect, a third path? Did you? Was there anything other than no, that? No, I didn't. Then what do you think, um, you, you know, put a seed in your head to question all of these people when, when most of them weren't questioning any of that? I, I don't know what, what put it there initially. I mean, I can look back and I can, I can see. I mean, I was raised in a very patriotic household. It was obviously a very serious religious household. Um, and were you reading a lot at the time? I, I, I always read. I love books, and so that was certainly a door, a window into another world. Um, but also, I would I would say that there were values in those traditions. Like there is a 
revolutionary element in patriotism. I mean, we are an, a, a nation born out of violent revolution against the most powerful empire the world had seen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, the Christian religion is founded out of the life and teachings of this Jewish prophet slash revolutionary named Jesus of Nazareth. In each of these are profound critiques of how we actually live now. Even though we might say, oh, I love my country and its ideals, or yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. Well, it's not that easy, actually. And so I think there was an element there where I, and I remember actually in 1976, because that was the bicentennial year, and I was I was a good student, but I was a lazy student, and I, I kind of tried to avoid engaging and one of my teachers was determined to draw me out and so she asked me to participate in uh, this speech contest for the bicentennial celebration and and it was I don't know something about like what America means to me or what makes our country great or something like that and I remember like just kind of shaking my head saying no way I'm gonna be part of this and then she mentioned that there were cash prizes mm-hmm. for people being part of this and that there were three cash prizes and at this point only two people had entered the contest which means I was guaranteed something out of this so I remember just kind of throwing together something at the last minute which was essentially saying we should celebrate the bicentennial by actually being serious about living out the ideals of this country mm-hmm. um, in retrospect, I'm pretty impressed with myself um, because it's like, wow, right on. I absolutely endorse that today, and that's, goddamn, that's 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it wasn't so popular with the American Legion judges, <laughs> and I came in third <laughs> out of three. Um, Is that but, five nineteen seventy six dollars? <laughs> yes, five. So that's probably ten dollars now. Or, from even 20 I don't know uh, but anyway it was uh, uh, that gives you a sense of both kind of like I I didn't want to speak that was I just kind of wanted to be left alone what started making me feel like I needed to speak was music um, and, and in 1970 the fact that this happened in 76 it may be significant because it is in the couple of years before that where I have become immersed in rock music particularly initially 60s rock um, Rolling Stones uh, Jimi Hendrix Janis Joplin Doors Jefferson Airplane and then stuff more obscure stuff like MC5 and the Stooges MC5 in particular was a huge influence on me Um, and then because of my love for 60s music which was kind of like at that point that was like you know you're it was not the music my peers were listening to that was you know the uh, last generation's music we were into you know good stuff like Bachman Turner Overdrive and, BTO uh, yeah. yeah and I don't remember what else Steve Miller Band was big uh, Kiss Kiss of course Kiss I saw Kiss in 1978 with their makeup on opening band was Cheap Trick but and that was my second show ever my first show ever was Black Oak Arkansas with Charlie Daniels Band with Ruby Star and Grey Ghost opening for them. So Ruby Star often lost in, in the midst of history. I remember being a big fan of her at the time. Uh, uh, but back to front. Um, I, 
somewhere in 1975, probably early 75, maybe mid 75, I saw a picture of this wild-haired woman wearing a Keith Richards t-shirt. And I was like, what the hell is this? And it was in stereo review because my parents had figured out that I was interested in music and so they decided, well, let's give him a music magazine. And stereo review, which mostly focused on classical music, might have not been the first choice I would have had. Um, but it's Steve Simmels, there was a, a writer in there, a rock critic named Steve Simmels, who actually was pretty, pretty hip. And he is how I first learned about Patti Smith. And it's really from that, the Patti Smith is my bridge out of this backward looking to this past generation's music to my immersion in punk. Mm-hmm. Um, How did you manage to procure then these records living where you lived? Well, Patti Smith was on a major label and so I bought that in the record store in the county seat of Sheridan County, Garrick's Record, Garrick's record and Tape Limited or something like that. I remember going there, I had been hauling grain to the the elevator there. You, these, we, people who aren't from the agricultural community, they have these big structures where you bring grain and you sell it to them and then they get it on trains and they take it away. So I was doing that and I took a break and walked down and I, because I'd heard that she had a record out. So this is the horses? Right? This is horses, yeah. And I bought it there on, you know, dusty Main Street of you know, Plentywood, Montana uh, and took it home. And I remember playing it for the first time and uh, I had no clue what to expect other than that that the sense I had was that this person would have the passion and vision that some of these 60s people had, but that was so lacking in the music that my peers were listening to, and she would be right here, right now. Mm-hmm. You know, that this would not be the past, this would be the now. And I remember, because if, if you know horses, there's kind of this, these quiet piano chords that start and it's kind of like very subdued and then you hear patty smith jesus died for somebody's sins but not mine <laughs> what the fuck <laughs> you know right on i mean I, I remember listening to the record and 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 just being like just blown away i was like She's saying things. I mean, it's blasphemy is what she's saying. And I was like, cool. (laughs) I'm not alone. I'm not alone. And uh, uh, and so, Patty, I began to try to find out whatever I could about Patty Smith. Um, And that brought me to the magazine Rock Scene, which happened to be sold. Again, you had to go far distances to get stuff at that time. This is, of course, long before Internet um, and search engines. so I was the search engine, and I discovered that at Service Drug, which drugstore in Williston, North Dakota, um, which was about an hour and fifteen minutes, maybe an hour and a half from where I grew up, they got this magazine called Rock Scene, which had all these stories about. I mean, it was kind of covered all sorts of rock music, but it had Patti Smith in it, and then it had these other bands from CBGBs, you know. Uh, uh, television, Richard Hell and the Voidoys, Wayne County, um, Heartbreakers, and then not long down the line, you know, because we're talking late 75 when I start hearing Patti Smith, by two years from then, um, you know, early 70, actually probably the first time, eh, 
yeah, probably the first time I saw a picture of the Sex Pistols there would be late 76. Mm -hmm. But I saw a bigger feature about the, the English punk explosion there in that magazine in early 77 with Sex Pistols, The Clash, The Damned. Um, and, you know, it was my window uh, into a universe of possibility. Before that came along, and that would include like because I think initially listening to the '60s stuff, I, I was yeah, I was not happy, you know I was not a happy kid because I felt like I was trapped, um, and listening to the '60s stuff was inspiring on one hand, but since it was past and it was not really my peers, it kind of only made me feel worse, and and like people, you missed the boat. Yeah, exactly. And it's kind of like, you know, I'm fucked, you know, in a sex negative sense. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, and I mean, people talk about punk saving their lives. And, you know, it kind of becomes a cliche. Um, and you're kind of like, and it's hyperbole. But it's true. I mean, because... I didn't have any reason to live. I didn't feel like I had any reason to live. Um, and then there were these kids my own age, and they were like raising their voices and putting their whole hearts um, into this music. And you know, the music was pretty terrible sometimes, but the spirit was alive, um, and it gave me hope. And was this then going to draw you out of the community that you were living in? Yeah, ultimately it would. I mean, I mean initially, I mean, this is this is what's ironic because I'm part of the DC punk scene, and the DC punk scene, like most punk scenes, really has been centered in, you know, not entirely, but largely in suburban middle class, maybe even upper middle class communities. So it's somewhat different than certainly somewhat different than the uh, kind of the crazy bohemia of you know the Lower East Side the CBGB scene um, the working class art school kind of mix in, in London um, and for people here like Ian Mackay um, who's, who's a dear friend and a tremendous inspiration one of the rebellions was not going to college because that was what was set for you I think uh, the band Mission Impossible that was really influential on me in 1985 had a song called Life Already Drawn. And it's kind of like, there it is, it's laid out for you, you know? It's already prepackaged. All you have to do is just strap yourself in, ride down the line. Um, and so people would rebel against college um, and, and the expectations. Um, was the expectation on you that you would take over the farm and fully engage with that work there? That was part of the... I mean, that was the actually the more hopeful, <laughs> because if I wasn't that, and I'm I, again, agricultural kind of uh, working class economies, the oldest son is the one who's in line to inherit. I'm not the oldest son. Ironically, we had two older sisters, but they don't. Matter. That's not going to happen. Um, back then, I think it's changed now. But uh, but I was the second son. My my brother really wanted to do this. Um, so it was kind of assumed he would do it. Um, as I was kind of struggling trying to find my direction, I went to school for a little bit and then I came back home. Um, uh, but it happened to be a time when my brother's addiction was particularly bad and he 
uh, this is a sign of how desperate my father was because I was not a good farmer. And, you know, I'll be frank, I was just not maybe a little better at ranching because I really loved the animals. But um, my dad asked me if I wanted to take over and that was a big thing. And, uh, and I mean, I knew, I knew how hard it was for him because my brother really had been the one the whole time who, who had been there with my dad. I mean, my, my memories of my life when I was a kid, you know, really young, is my dad is working. My brother is with my dad working. My mom is working. I am with my dog. Um, and I am wandering this, you know, vast expanse. You know, if I'm not working, which <laughs> you might have noticed there's a motif here, working. <laughs> if I'm not working, I'm by myself with my dog. And, uh, and it's a long ways to any, you know, town. Um, I, at a certain point, I didn't even want to go to town. I just liked being by myself, you know, liked. I mean, it was also, you know, obviously I was sad. But, uh, I mean, not to be too silly, but I remember it being so sad that at one point, like, I remember sitting on the back step of our house and hugging the dog and kind of crying. Um, and that's the, that's, that's the world that, that punk rescued me from and it gave me the courage to go to college and to go to college on my terms which is I'm not going to go there just because okay I got to get out of the working class I got to find something that's going to pay me money um, uh, you know have a good career it made me you know take classes I was interested in and I thought mattered and ironically and this might be a lesson, um, when you do something that you're passionate about, you tend to do better than if you're just kind of going through the motions of what other people tell you you should do. And so I actually excelled as a student. Um, what sort of classes were you taking? And Political where? science and history, primarily. And your parents, were they paying for your college? Yeah, although you have to understand, I'm going to Montana State University, which is a land-grant college. It's, uh, uh, it, is the, it was extremely cheap by current standards to go to for in-state folks. It was nicknamed Moo Yu because it was an agricultural and engineering school primarily. And so, uh, you know, it's a place where, you know, kids would go for a year or two to, you know, kind of get away before they have to go back and accept adult life. Um, or a few people would go there and, and, you know, it's your ticket out. Mm -hmm. That's what it became for me because I became an activist. I mean, there was no music scene. I first in Sheridan County, there's no music scene, certainly not. Um, if there was any music scene there at the time, it would have been country music scene, um, and that's even stretching it. There's a little bit of a tiny rock scene, like cover bands and stuff like that. But Bozeman, Montana, at the time, there's no punk scene either. That's where I went to school, Montana State. Um, and so how do you express, like, the, the single most powerful, meaningful thing in your life is punk music. How do you express it? Well, I guess I could have started a band or something, but with whom, I don't know. Uh, so for me, just naturally, I became an activist because that was, to me, how to express the values. You live them. You know, you speak out. You stand up. Um, what issues were you drawn to at that time? The very first thing that I got involved with was a janitorial strike at, at MSU. And it's not, it's, it totally flows out of punk because one of my professors was like this kind of leftover 60s radical and he loved music and he talked. 
I remember him playing a Bob Marley song and kind of unpacking it in this class I was in with him and a Victor Hara song, you know, the, the uh, Chilean folk singer who was murdered by the Pinochet regime. Uh, and that gave me the idea as well. Like, oh. Because we were supposed to give this talk. Um, I'm sorry, I'm not looking at y'all very much. Um, we were supposed to give this talk. Like, we had to, like, take a whole 45-minute period. And we had to stand up and tell the class about something. And I was like, what on earth? <laughs> I... That's the last thing on earth I want to do is stand up in front of people. I, it's just like something that scared me. I, I didn't want to do it. And then he played this music and talked about it. I was like, you know, I could get up there. I could talk about punk music. And I could probably fill a class. Plus, I'll play some music, so that'll take up some time. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and so I did. I, I did this, this uh, talk on uh, the ideology of punk new wave music and played different things. Let me think what I played. Uh, I know I played Tom Robinson band. I think I might have played some Gang of Four, um, Sex Pistols, I certainly played that. Not sure if I played any Clash. Um, Elvis Costello, Graham Parker, I'm pretty sure I played those folks. Um, maybe Generation X. Stiff little fingers, I remember for sure because the way it was set up is honestly, I was so scared to talk in front of people that I would literally set it up so I'd talk a little bit, play a couple songs. Oh yeah, X-Ray Specs. I played X-Ray Specs and Slits. I remember the that. That was great. Um, uh, so I'd be getting up there and I'd talk, but then I'd start getting scared. So I'd say, okay, time for some more music. And then I'd get jazzed up again and then I'd get through it. And I remember the Stiff Little Finger song an alternative Ulster because I played it right at the very beginning right before I was starting to talk um, because it really pumped me up and I remember there's this little spoken thing right at the end where Jake Burns says go and get it now and I remember like okay go for it um, and he the, turned out the teacher was just enthralled by this and he actually he had invited a friend who was in charge of the programming services at MSU there and she had come like having had apparently some bad experiences with some vaguely punk related folks in New York and was there prepared to attack me from a, like a feminist you know radical perspective and she was enthralled she asked me to go and take this like do this talk elsewhere in this campus now Remember, it's an agricultural and engineering school. Mm -hmm. um, I, and you put me out in these dorms, like particularly one dorm was known as the, the cowboy dorm. And so I remember... They didn't want to hear that like, punk shit. One, well, no, but... Although they were, I think they got kind of interested when they found out I was playing a band called The Slits. And I remember one guy there in particular, like with chewing tobacco and a hat and, and boots, and he's listening. Yeah, that's not unusual to me. I grew up with that, so it's not. I'm not alien to it. Although at that point, I probably wouldn't have worn that stuff because it was kind of like the uniform was something that I was stepping out of. Um, it was like it's kind of like what the fuck is this? You know, they just walk downstairs and some crazy sounding shit that's saying even crazier stuff. And she's showing the but, you know, the no one beat me up, so I considered it a victory. Um, uh, and, and the reason I bring that up is because it was just a few days after that, you know, giving this talk for the first time, that I walked by a picket line uh, because the janitor had struck 
Um, and, uh, and I remember I was going from one class to the next and I remember going by the picket line and you know, my father had been in a farmer's union and I remember my, fa my father talking about how bullheaded farmers were how they always had to do it by themselves and they were never going to get together and because of that they were going to get their ass kicked from now to the end of eternity. Um, and I remember you know, him taking time out of his work to go to these union meetings and I was a kid, I didn't really understand it, but I did understand this, like people who are doing backbreaking work and they're trying to get a better deal to get a fair shake and you know, that was my dad. Um, and so I was there and I saw the picket line and I read the flyer and I was like, man, they're righteous in what they're asking. This is the, they're, they're right. The administration is wrong. Time to stand up. And, and I, you know, picked up a picket sign and I walked with them. How did that um, go? Went great as far as I was concerned because I felt like I wasn't a coward anymore because I was standing up. I mean, because basically, and, and a friend of mine once said, he's kind of a loud mouth as well, he said he became an activist in a strange way. He's a loud mouth and he, his mouth wrote a check that his ass had to pay. Mm -hmm. Meaning like he said stuff and people were like, oh, sounds good. Let's you walk the talk. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's really what happened to me. And you know, and then you know, this is 1980, so this is a Carter time. Um, shortly, we would have lots of inspiration for standing up because Reagan would come along. And then there was like picking. You could pick your issue. You know, um, I was involved around issues of nuclear war, the the war in Central America, uh, abortion. You know, the cuts in social programs. All of these kinds of things were coming up. Um, because, from my point of view, um, Reagan was giving away the store to the rich um, and regressive. Not just rich, but regressive as well. And so I got involved with all those things. Through all of that, and Central America and nuclear arms race, I would say, with particular passions, um, through that, some pretty amazing things ultimately happened. I, I think that's probably why I ended up here. Um, but basically, I became an activist and a, an outstanding student. And, uh, uh, sorry, excuse me here. Um, and uh, and, I, and I, I remember my, my, again, this is how naive I am. I don't know the damn thing. But my professors are telling me, you got to take this thing called the GRE. And I said, well, why would I take that? And he said, well, because graduate school, of course. I was like, oh, I can go to more school. <laughs> I, I hadn't really figured out how I was going to pay for it, but it was, you know, it was better than going back to the farm and working like a dog, um, you know, not necessarily knowing why. Although I know better now why. I understand it. And, and, and you know, I see the artistry and the passion that my father and my mom had and now my brother has but you know it's again it's just kind of was just not for me so anyway I took this test and I remember uh, my uh, my advisor I brought her the the scores and I gave it to her and she opened it up and she just started beaming she's like 
you can go to any school anywhere you want to. Um, I was like, what? <laughs> of course, the thing left out is like, if you can pay for mm-hmm. it. But but still, it was like, so that's, that's how I ended up applying. I, I was thinking of applying to three graduate schools. I ended up applying to two. Um, I was accepted at both of them. One of them was here in Washington, D.C., and that's why I moved here in 1984. Um, now, you will notice something interesting because you'll see, like, this whole journey starts with me rebelling against society, if you will. And yet the irony is that through my rebellion, I became an, a success. I was a known person on campus. You know, I would, okay, I was known as the activist guy, um, but... Okay, that's better than being the nobody. Um, and I was going off to this fancy school on the East Coast. Almost nobody where I grew up. I mean, it was, it was, you know, heads or tail whether you would go to college at all where I grew up. But to go to some big fancy school on the East Coast, I had it made. <laughs> Um, but the, the, you, of course, you see the tension here because what has happened? Remember, I was talking about life already drawn. Um, I had a life already drawn that I rejected. You know that that life of manual labor and, and you know the rural working class. But now I was I was getting on another career track, and it was heading me towards something that maybe was not what I believed in. Um, what was that something you felt you were heading well, towards? I, I went to Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my professors, because I had some left-wing professors at MSU, you know, not all of them were left-wing, but there were a few that were. Um, and he was from D.C. and he says, oh, so you're going to go to CIAS, because he knew it was an establishment school. It's the place you go if you're, you know, being recruited into at least the lower echelons of the American ruling class. Um, and, you know, that's success, and it made my parents very happy. And I guess, you know, it certainly boosted my ego. Um, but is it what I really want? Um, and, you know, I don't want to be overly yeah, lofty about it. You know, when I say lower echelons, that is often what it would be. Not always. One of my classmates is, was Tim Geithner, and obviously he ended up, mm-hmm. you know, doing pretty well for himself <laughs> on Wall Street and then in the Obama administration. Um, but, uh, you know, most of the time you're just going to be a functionary. Someone else is going to tell you what you're going to do. And I was particularly interested in U.S. foreign policy, Central America in particular. Uh, that's what I went to study. Um, but if I was going to get a job, I'm going to be working for, you know, ultimately for whoever's president. 1983 and 84, that's Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. Now, he's reelected in the fall of 84, which might be part of why my life took the direction it did. Because essentially, I was getting set up to spend all this money to be in a job where Ronald Reagan was my boss. Um, and you have to, you know, you have to implement what they tell you or you get fired. Mm-hmm. Now, what the fuck would you, why on earth would you go through all of that to just be in a job that you're either going to hate yourself for doing it or you're going to fight back and you're going to get fired? It seems like a pretty pointless thing. But yeah, of course, at the time, I hadn't figured it, started, sorted it through. I was just like, 
I don't have to get a job. I can go to school. I've got another two years to try to figure it out. Um, but I was being put in a track, and I was headed towards towards that that destination. Um, well, coming coming into DC, then was that your initial introduction to an active punk scene? Absolutely, mm-hmm. because there's essentially no punk scene. There were by the time I left Montana, there were a few people, maybe half dozen. If you stretched it, maybe a dozen people who were interested in punk, like would listen to it or might identify with that. But, you know, I often have joked that I was one of six punks in, in Montana. The state of Montana, which is 600 miles long and 250 miles wide, so it's a big place. And it's kind of hyperbole, but it's also pretty much true. One of them was a cow with a mohawk, so I don't know if that counts. Here we go. <laughs> might not. There probably was a cow with a mohawk. Someone, someone would be bored enough <laughs> to do something like that. You know, you, you have to make your own fun where I'm from. So, <laughs> right. Or you go drink, and you could sometimes the two go together. You drink, and then you, you know, give your cow a mohawk. Um, so, but co- coming into seeing an actual scene, a lot of times people's concept of punk can be very uh, egalitarian, and then seeing it in practice, it also comes with a world of dumb. Uh, you know, there's a lot of stupid attached to punk. So when you finally got to see this thing in practice, how did you react to the living embodiment of yeah. the records you were listening to? Um, not well, because you, you, I, it's fair to say that I had a somewhat idealistic and romantic view of punk, listening to punk in records in my bedroom mm-hmm. um, or reading the interviews. Um, I was drawn towards the more idealistic parts. That means Ziggy Carter's punk is this huge, sprawling thing. Even back then, you know, there's, you know, the Ramones are punk, Blondie's punk, um, Patti Smith is punk, yeah, the, the Sex Pistols are punk, the, you know, the Dickies are punk. I mean, you know, there's some really goofy stuff that's punk. Um, and, you know, that's part of the whole thing. It's like all the crazy misfits, you know, they're getting together and they're making their own club. They've been excluded from the other clubs, so they make their own. And right on to that. However, I was drawn towards the, you know, in retrospect, more idealistic, more political folks because it seemed to me, you know, I, again, I grew up in the working class. You, there's not that much use there for, like, fantastic notions because you have to put bread on the table. Um, so, um, and I remember we were where I grew up. Um, if you know the song "Okie OK from Muskogee," mm-hmm. that would have been our anthem. Um, the '60s, when I was a kid growing up in the '60s, the student protesters and the rock bands and the pot smokers—they were the enemy. They were just—they were beyond the pale. I remember watching. Um, I don't know where it was. It probably was the uh, the uh, demonstrations after Nixon invaded Cambodia um, because there was such a outburst of demonstrations and you know in retrospect I understand them now and awfully sympathetic to them not agreeing with everything that people did but knowing that what Nixon did was crazy and wrong at the time I looked at it and I remember just thinking what spoiled brats these kids they have the opportunities that kids like me or others like that I grew up with will never have. And look what they do with it. They burn it down. Fuck them. I remember that was the kind of disdain and, and all disgust verging on hatred that the, 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 the milieu that I grew up in felt. 
Well, coming from um, the working class, if you if you were their age at that time, you probably would have been in Vietnam. I may well have, and there were certainly people from where I grew up who were in Vietnam. I remember one of them coming back. He was not the same person. He, I mean, I think he had been wounded in the head, and he he was not right in the head, and it was sad to see. So you'd see that that pain, but there was also that patriotism. It's kind of like, you know. I remember when my bus driver being, I, I said something because Muhammad Ali, or Cassius Clay as my bus driver called him, <laughs> um, was kind of a hero of mine. I was being big into sports and I remember um, Muhammad Ali coming up and my bus driver just getting apoplectic. It's like, I don't want to hear that name on this bus. If you can't fight for your country, you are trash, you know. Um, and that's the kind of attitude, is love it or leave it. I mean, that's what I grew up with. Um, so, so set that, set that aside, um, back to front. Um, uh, when I came to DC, you know, I, there was a concrete practical aim, you know, that's going to the school and having these opportunities. There were other things that were in my mind. Um, one, DC's international city, it's, it's, it's likely to be a fascinating place to be. I was excited about that. Probably number three, you know, so there's this very self-interested career path, there's this general interest in the community, and then there is the DC punk community. Because I knew about it from in Montana, which is a sign of how powerful it become, because DC is not a, a rock town. <laughs> it's not the center of any counterculture. It is the center of governmental establishment and, and all the corporate ugliness that grows up around it, the lobbying apparatus. I knew about Bad Brains, PMA, there was a band called Everett Verbs. I was a big fan of Minor Threat and Straightage, of course. I had not heard them in Montana, but I had heard of them, and I was like, I got to see these guys. I've got to hear their music. It was very hard to get out there. Um, uh, Black Flag, I had listened to, and it was actually partly through Black Flag, who had, of course, Henry Rollins in the band by then that I first heard about Straight Edge. Um, and so I was psyched. To, to learn about the scene and, and experience it. Again, I'm not, I'm not claiming that I came here because I was like, yeah, I'm coming here to be in the punk rock revolution headquarters of the world. Um, and I remember the first example of DC punk that I saw because I came into DC just a, yeah, about a mile from here is where I first lived. And I walked across the street to a payphone to call my mom and let her know that I was here safely and, you know, I'm not dead. You know, no one's attempted to, you know, rape me or kill me or, you know, etc. Uh, and right next to the payphone was graffiti that said, Nazi punks rule. Oi, oi, oi. Welcome to D.C. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the punk scene... At that specific moment, we're talking summer of 1984, um, was ugly. I mean, particularly what you would see first. Um, you know, the drugs, the violence, the, you know, the, the, the conformist fashion, um, the apathy. And, and I also, quite frankly, was not a fan. I'm a, I usually can tell I'm kind of like these, this old line punk. You know, Patti Smith is your introduction to punk. That means you were into punk for five years before anybody anywhere ever slam danced. Mm -hmm. um, 
because that's going to happen in 1980 in Huntington Beach, and then shortly thereafter be brought to the East Coast by people like Ian and Henry. Um, and I was not a fan of it, and I was not a fan in general of the hardcore music that I had heard. People like Bad Brains or Black Flag, Damaged Ear or Black Flag, I thought were great. When I heard Minor Threat, I took me a moment to figure out what they were doing, but when I did, I was the same with Bad Brains, actually. I remember actually hearing Pay to Come for the first time, and I, I'm sure I'm not the only one. I think I've heard other people tell the story, but it was like so fast and so tight, and, and the words were coming so fast. I remember my friend Greg Carr literally, um, you know, we slowed the thing down to listen to see if he was actually saying all the words in the lyric sheet. <laughs> damned if, if HR wasn't <laughs> as far as we could tell um, but that stuff was all gone um, what was left now was kind of the uh, I think tr Ian uh, later said it was kind of like this tree that kept growing and like the, the core of it was really strong initially but as it grew it got bigger and bigger but then the core rotted out and so you have this huge thing but it's hollow at, at the core and it's ugly. Um, you know, the Salad Days single came out within a few months after I got here. Minor Threat was gone, but this song came out, and I remember saying, thinking, yeah, you got it right. Because as far as I could tell, DC Punk was no better than the mainstream society I was fighting. It might have actually been worse. I literally remember, like, being so disillusioned that thinking like, you know, everything I believe back in Montana about punk is a lie. Uh, it would be better, it might be better if punk had never existed. Because, you know, talk about Ronald Reagan being ugly. At least Ronald Reagan isn't pretending to be anything other, well, he kind of was pretending. But, you know, bottom line, he's going for power. And he's got an agenda, and you know he's pretty straight. If you listen between the anecdotes, you get a pretty good idea what he's talking about. Punk said they were better. I thought they might have, we, we might have ended up worse. And and the good news is that fortunately, being a punk, you don't just let the darkness overwhelm you, because what's the great punk thing to do? You look at stuff, you get pissed off, and you do something. And that's really the beginning of my, uh, uh, you know, kind of creation or help co-creation of a positive force. I will pause to mention the clash in this because there's a period of the clash that doesn't get covered very much, which is their last two years after they essentially kicked out Mick Jones. And for many people, the band ends then. I actually, and I was a huge fan, and I was tremendously inspired by them, probably the single most inspirational band in my entire life short of bands I encountered here in DC like Fugazi um, although it's a different thing because I was a teenager then and, and it was so it was life or death and, and then it's a, it was life or death with Fugazi and you know Bikini Kill and Embrace and Right to Spring and so forth but it's, it's I'm just at a different place in my life um, but the last, essentially, the last two years of the Clash are, in one sense, a questioning of their success. And in a weird way, they hit their success at the time I was hitting mine. Now, yeah, again, these are the silly things that kids who are big fans of bands like find this resonance in 
whatever story of the band that you know resonates for you in your life. But I remember listening to you know seeing interviews with Strummer during that period, and he's basically saying we had a culture, and we abandoned it. We're punks, you know. We want to get back to our roots, uh, that kind of thing, um, and. It totally made sense to me. It, it, it did express that misgiving I had because it's kind of like I had succeeded. I, you know, and I had every chance of having respect in the eyes of not just my parents, which, you know, did matter to me, but, you know, people in general, you know. Even today, you know, sometimes people will, and I don't tend to talk too much about the school I went to, but even today people will pry the name of the school out of me and they'll be, like, impressed that I went there. Would you like to say the name of the school? Well, Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International yeah. Studies, yeah, yeah. Um, which according to Wikipedia is the premier international relations school in, in the world. Um, and it is a place where, you know, like I said, the, the ruling class replicates itself. Um, but if it doesn't feel real to me, who cares what other people think? And I think that's the deep thing that Strummer was wrestling with. Because what do you lose when you get to be a super big band? You lose connection to people in an organic way, which, if anything, is how they were able to create such great art. Um, what do I lose? Well, it, I'm not making great art, but I, I lose my self-respect. Because the one thing I had, even as a teenager, was this sense of like, well, it's Popeye, another early influence. I am what I am, and that's all that I am. Um, so we'll give Popeye some credit in there too. Another inspiration, along with uh, you know Jesus Christ and the Revolutionary War. Um, and so, uh, so that's really I am in this moment of deep questioning, and I think that's part of why I went to the DC punk scene because I kind of wanted to check out and like, you know, you know maybe there's something here. And then my initial response is, no, there isn't anything here. Let's run for the hills. Um, but but you didn't run. I didn't run uh, because I'm a punk. <laughs> you stand up. <laughs> you speak out. You don't give up. Um, and, and the amazing thing, which is uh, nothing to do with me, but everything to do with the extraordinary people who soon became my friends, was that something called Revolution Summer was building. Totally unbeknownst to me totally independent with the development of positive force but absolutely of the same spirit and, and in this that is the 30 summer, year anniversary it is the 30 year anniversary 30 years ago this month revolution summer was declared in fact six in the, days ago in the salad days uh, documentary you you mentioned this and you say in the documentary and you kind of get choked up when you say it that you felt like you were born then or reborn or something to that effect yeah I mean, how did um, that... It was the second time punk rock turned my world upside down, or more appropriately, it turned it right side up. Because I was right to have the misgivings. I didn't. I wasn't feeling what I was doing. I was doing it because I didn't know anything better to do, and because people said, "You've got this opportunity. You better grab it." Mm -hmm. um, well, we should interject for a second. Although Revolution Summer has been written about and is in the documentary, and you know it's understood by some people, maybe you should give your view of what it was for the listener who may not be that familiar with it. Well, the fundamental idea is that it's about punks who believe that punk should not be a cartoon, you know, a joke, uh, you know, a suit of clothes that you put on, 
that it should be a revolutionary challenge to yourself and to the world. Um, now, how that plays out in any given context could mean a million different things. But what it meant specifically at that moment is that, that certain people within the DC punk scene, some relatively new, many of them longtime members, had decided enough with this shit. We're embarrassed by what our scene had become. This was the thing that gave our lives meaning. This is the thing that you know we pledged our, our lives to. And it's falling apart. We're standing around letting it fall apart. Let's stand up. You know, like the Embrace song, it's time to speak and move. No more sitting down, it's time to speak and move. Um, and that was exactly the, the idea. And how it played out was a million different ways. Several of the ways was that the, the trap that hardcore music had become was going to be exploded. You weren't going to you know, play by the loud, fast rules. Um, uh, you know, this slam dancing, which had become ritualized over the past five years. Why? Let's find another way of dancing that includes everybody, not just the, the you know, the tough guys, basically. Um, what about other ways to live? What about vegetarianism? Is that a logical extension of straight edge? Ian and Tomas thought it was. Made a lot of sense to them. Um, if you're moving out of your parents' house, and you're trying to be about something better, well, how are you gonna live? What are you gonna create in your household, you know? Um, if you feel things, but you don't act, aren't you just a hypocrite like the other people you're criticizing? So it's out of this that the activism comes. I mean, literally, why are there punk percussion protests in front of the South African embassy? in that summer? Well, it starts with two things, but the first thing is Amy Pickering seeing on, you know, she's one of the early punks and that kind of the scene, she's seeing the scene fall apart and become embarrassing, like something you just don't want to be around. You don't really want to admit you were part of it. Um, and so she's kind of, kind of drifting, not sure what to do, got this kind of, uh, make work job with the DC government, you know, the summer youth program and just kind of drifting. And she happens to see the news from South Africa one day in 1984, and they're rising up against, the, the black folks are rising up against the apartheid regime with extraordinary courage, and people are getting killed. I mean, kids are getting killed. And she looks at that, and she sees that these kids who are putting their lives on the line, not in some rhetorical way, but in a flesh and blood way, are her peers. And here she is sitting around, like, goofing off. She was ashamed. Um, and so that's what starts her into this, this idea of sending out these ransom notes that kind of anonymously announce to a certain network of people that revolution is coming. I think the first one said, be on your toes, revolution summer is coming. Mm -hmm. um, um, and out of that ferment that was created from, you know, this conversation from the notes and so forth, Chris Bald and Tomas Squibb, Chris Bald later of Faith and then later of Embrace and Tomas Squibb of Red Sea in the past and now Beefeater, were, there were demonstrations that had started to erupt around that time at the South African Embassy regularly. And, you know, they were pretty 
mainstream demonstrations. It was kind of like you, people were getting arrested, but it was the kind of arrested where you're like, okay, here's the list of our people who are willing to be arrested today. We'll give it to you. We will come here. We'll kneel down, and then if you can arrest us, you know, and then we'll be on the news. Okay, I'm not putting it down. The people, you know, there's some real vision involved. People are, you know, putting themselves out there. No one else was doing it before that, so kudos to them. But still, for Chris and, and Tomas, they were kind of like, well... Uh, you know, good for them, but this doesn't feel real to us. We're not just, we don't want to go down just to get arrested, to be arrested. Um, and so they're like, we should have, because B Fader had this song, Apartheid No, this anti-apartheid song. And it was like, we should get on the back of a truck and pull up in front of the embassy playing that song and, you know, raise holy hell. Now, it turned out there were some logistical problems with that. <laughs> um, but they actually came up with a better idea, which is, let's go down there. We'll support the demonstrations that are going on, but we'll do our thing. What are punks good at? Making a lot of loud noise. So let's bring down drums, let's bring it down, let's express our outrage. And that's what they did. Um, so there's this whole series of things, and you see it happening in the music. The music's uh, blasted open, there's a whole new uh, uh, like uh, vista of possibilities for what the music might be, for what punk music might be. Um, there is also the uh, uh, there's also you know vegetarianism being linked to straight edge. People are starting to live in group houses, sometimes in communal situations, like intentional living. Positive Force House would be the most outstanding example of that, but not the only one. Before us, that well, kind of simultaneously with us was Kearney Street House. Um, and now there are a bunch of punk rock group houses. Um, uh, there's a real critique of sexism emerging. Um, part of that is in this attack, this opposition to slam dancing. Part of it is also in, in the, the way people are expressing themselves on stage. This would be, you know, open the way for what now is called emo, um, which essentially is a meaningless term to us here in DC, but it is true that at that time there was a broader spectrum of emotions being expressed than just simple blind rage. Um, Were you met with more reactionary elements within the punk scene who didn't like maybe this more hippie-ish uh, approach that, that you folks were taking or trying to move the scene towards? Of course. I mean, basically, there's a big confrontation. I mean, first of all, there's a skinhead gang, which is terrorizing the scene at that point. Um, and so that's one thing you got to fight um, in whatever way. I mean, there's a real emphasis on sort of uh, passive, not passive resistance, uh, pacifism, like nonviolent resistance, which sometimes you can see it as weak, but in a lot of ways it was strong, and it was really what defeated them. Where, where did you stand, or do you stand on pacifism? I'm not a pacifist, but violence is a dangerous tool, and it should only be used in uh, you know the appropriate circumstances. Um, you know, self-defense clearly. Um, in political terms, if you're in a revolutionary situation, um, then you have to. If you're not in a revolutionary situation, meaning in other words that you don't have a mass of people behind you, then it's actually something that's likely to get you killed and a lot of other people killed and not really accomplish much. That's the short version. So I, there are people within the scene who are outright pacifists. Um, Ian Mackay becomes a pacifist during this time. Again, the sign of the ferment, like the, because Ian was anything but a pacifist before that. Early punk stuff, you had to fight to protect yourself because people wanted to kick your ass just because you were a punk. 
and so they kind of gained, gained, formed a little gang, if you will, to defend themselves. But, you know, the violence is such a corrupting thing that later, like, the skinheads would literally tell Ian, you know, because Ian confronts with saying, why are you doing this stupid stuff? And it's like, well, you did it. And, you know, on one hand, that's bullshit. On the other hand, there's some truth to it, because that's how they operated. They were a tough little group, and they set the rules. And if you deviated, they would kick your ass. Now, that's towards the end of things. But when they start questioning towards the end of the hardcore thing earlier, it's just protecting yourself first on the street from any crazy person who wants to kick your ass, and then uh, from the bouncers who, especially early on in the punk scene, didn't understand the punks at all. And you, you know, they're generally meathead folks who, you know, they might actually enjoy hurting people. Um, and most of these, <laughs> like if you, Ian Mackay, for example, is not a bruiser. He's a relatively slender and you know compact human being. Um, doesn't mean that he can't you know throw a pretty good punch if he has to. But you know he's not the tough guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they got strength from you know from each other. But the point is, they also showed other people who wanted to use this how powerful that kind of gang mentality could be to do. Uh, less palatable things um, and so there was a real questioning of that um, that's part of the slam dancing is also the sense I know Tomas was talking about it like why aren't women on stage um, there used to be on stage back in the earlier punk scene why are not more women in the, in the crowd well let me tell you as kind of a nerd male who why did, why did they go into punk to get away from the fucking macho meatheads mm-hmm Slam dancing comes along. Oh my God! You might as well put up a big sign. Macho meatheads, come here. Macho meatheads, we want you. Football played here on the dance floor. There are no rules. Um, and, and not that there weren't for people, but you see, there—that's the media perception. It goes out and it brings in these folks who act this way. And what in the beginning you could argue might have been a positive thing, might have been an expression that was valid and inclusive, becomes anything but. So there's this whole set of things. Essentially, the point of Revolution Summer is it's all open for question. Everything is possible. Again, go and make your scene um, and make it something you can be proud of again. Now, that's a revolution against punk rock as usual, but it's also a revolution against business as usual. It's expressed in these very arcane internal ways, like opposition to slam dancing or whatever, um, but also in these ways that have dramatic um, impacts potentially for society. You know, animal rights, um, you know, punk percussion protests, the no business as usual protests, the, the work of positive force. It's all part of that mix. And I have to pause for a sec because at this moment I'm supposed to be with my wife. Right, um, so I need to... I am back with Mark Anderson. It's a few hours later. Uh, Mark had dinner with Ed Meese. Ed didn't even pay. <laughs> and now we resume our conversation. Uh, we were Ed talking Meese about... had the pig. Uh. No, that's not true. Um, yeah, I was actually home with my wife and two kids and we had ourselves some very tasty vegan chili. Um... Uh, anyway, and my, my children are both asleep, so uh, I'm ready to talk again about 
uh, days long ago. Um, we're we're getting close to the present. We're only like at 90 years off of uh, to 2015. <laughs> uh, so, so anyway, kind of jumping back to Revolution Summer, I think the great irony of kind of that moment, just thinking of the desperation and kind of despair I felt about punk, is that ironically, even though I felt initially like I had uh, kind of you know, discovered that punk was all a lie or something like that. Ironically, I had moved to precisely the exact place I should have been at precisely the right moment. And it's some of the stuff in my life as I look back at it is it's like if you wrote us a book that, like a novel that had these twists and turns, you would say, oh, that's very unlikely. <laughs> because it's just like, oh, that's too neat and, and pad. It's like, that couldn't really happen in real life. But it did, because essentially, you know, what I'm wrestling with is like, is it all this, you know, punk rock idealism that I believed in, is it just a lie? And of course the answer is no, it's not just a lie. I mean, the world is complicated and people are not, just one thing and and something like punk is not just one thing or the other so it's it is complicated but I mean it was an extraordinary moment the right people in the right place uh, at the right time and I I was just fortunate to be there um, and that that moment of revolution summer which was pretty hard fought I mean again there was uh, it was not an assurance of victory, mm-hmm. uh, you know, of accomplishing anything really. Um, when you look back at it now, it's it's clearly the, uh, a turning point in in the DC scene and arguably in punk in, in general because the DC punk scene had a tremendous story already. And in fact, it, in early 1986, kind of in the midst of kind of revolution summers ups and downs was when I decided to write Dance of Days, the narrative history of the the DC punk scene. Um, And I already thought it had an extraordinary story. Of course, the story was going to get better and better. (laughs) (laughs) Little did I know. Um, Because essentially that moment, if you look back now, you can can trace um, to Revolution Summer, uh, you know, things that yeah, to me may mean relatively little things like emo or post-hardcore, if you will. Um, but they mean a lot to yeah, a lot of people. The reverberations were huge. I mean, certainly felt in my own city, but then you know, throughout the world, and I think still to this day. Yeah, well, and you look at it, it's like, you know, Positive Force emerges out of that. Um, um, you know, Fugazi emerges out of that. So many of these kind of second-wave revolution summer bands, Fire Party, Soulside... Ignition, um, you know, and other bands like Holy Rollers or Jawbox. I mean, this is, you know, it is that energy they're feeding on. Fugazi is absolutely a Revolution Summer band, um, from my point of view. Also, you know, you can also look and you can see the trajectory of Dave Grohl from that moment because Dave's part of it, and obviously we'll become a part of a few things that have gotten a little bit of attention mm-hmm. over the past 20 odd years um, Riot Girl, really I mean if you trace back Riot Girl, it's really to that moment in fact later in the summer of 1991 
uh, when Riot Girl is uh, first the fanzine is named and then the uh, like the meetings start to happen and this movement generates this feminist punk movement some of the people who were key some of the founders of that dubbed that summer you because remember Bikini Kill who's central in this the Bikini Kill's big slogan was revolution girl style now mm-hmm. and in, if you go back to those early Riot Girl fanzines in one of them one of the people I don't even know who it is exactly within there but you know Jen Smith, Kathleen, Hannah, Allison Wolf, Molly Newman, somebody in there dubs that summer Revolution Summer Girl Style Now. Mm-hmm. And so what appeared at the time to maybe even fail, because if you actually look back, like who are these bands at the forefront of you know what we would call Revolution Summer, and you just tick off their names well Righteous Spring especially uh, they declare Revolution Summer on June 22nd, 21st of 1985 their last show was December 4th 1985 Grey Matter another key band they won't make it out of Revolution Summer now later on they would reform and play some shows but at the time yeah, yeah still the, the band like Righteous Spring still looms very large in, in all of punk emo you know hard well and as they should because you see one of the things they touched on was this essential truth it doesn't matter how long a band exists it matters what it does in the time it exists because for rights of spring and i think this was part of that revolution summer spirit is like now is everything this show might be our last show. This song might be our last song. We are going to play the hell out of it. We are going to live the hell out of it. We are going to reach towards that transparent moment that, you know, that they talk about in Drink Deep. And, and they're probably casting out a lot of seeds as well. Of in people's heads, both those who are present to see it and those who later have heard of this mythologized event and it, and it you know, grows a little seed in their head. Well, yeah, no. And, and, you know, seeing Rites of Spring live, you know, unfortunately, relatively few people got that chance, you know, in the overall scope of who the folks who love their music. Those who did, I, I think very few walked away um, without being changed in a profound way. Um, and I, having said that, though, the record is extraordinary. The songs are amazing. The... Um, the energy they brought even to the recorded, um, you know, version of their music is, is, is transformative. So you look, anyway, you get back there, it's like, you see Right to Spring is gone, Grey Matter is gone, Embrace, such an extraordinary band as well. They're gone by the middle of, they were gone by the time I proposed Dance of Days, you know, first, because, to Ian, because I basically, I knew that I didn't want to do it if Ian wasn't going to, you know, cooperate. Um, but he was willing, um, and uh, but Embrace was broken up by then. Beefeater breaks up shortly thereafter. Mission Impossible, Lunch Meat, they're gone. You know, by the end of the summer, basically, their younger bands and members are going off to college. Even One Last Wish, who is the band that comes quickly out of Righteous Spring and Embrace, itself is gone by early 1987. So at that time, it looked like, you know, and there were people made fun of it made fun of it and of some of these bands it's like yeah discord bands by the time you hear about them they've broken up mm-hmm. um and you know there's some truth in it and you will notice that bands who came in the second wave of these things bands like fugazi or soul side or fire party or 
you know, Ignition, they lasted longer and they toured more. Um, that was the other thing. DC bands never got on tour. That's not totally true. Obviously, Bad Brains did, although they were had moved to New York by then. Minor Threat obviously did. Um, but that was one of the critiques. I think one of the main critics of that period would be Brian Baker. And one of the things he was absolutely sure about is the Dag Nasty, they were not going to be a prisoner of Washington, D.C. They were going to get out and play for anybody who would listen all across you know, I, you know, the country, but I think also the world. And, you know, Brian has that kind of vision. It's an expansive vision. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's an impressive, even inspiring vision in certain ways. It is a vision that is more commercially minded than uh, many at that time. Uh, and so, you know, it wasn't, uh, I, I, you know, personally, I thought Dagnesi was an incredible band, particularly in the original version with Sean Brown singing. Um, but, you know, I, I was less inspired by them than these other bands, partly because it seemed like, well, they want to make a career out of it. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it's not something, it's like, you know, life or death, everything is on the line right now. What are you going to do? And that was the spirit of that time. And so, you know, you can look back now and you can see the immense impact it had. It was not as clear at the time, but it was, uh, or even someone like Nation of Ulysses, who would be very influential, clearly bears the, the mark of that time. Um, but it was a time that made a difference uh, profoundly. Having said that, all of the things that make the DC scene distinctive and that have inspired so many people have their critics too. Revolution Summer is a very controversial thing. Depending on who you talk to in the DC scene, you will hear um, lofty praise like you hear from me, or you'll hear like, I'll, I'll quote my uh, co the, my co-founder, the co major other major co-founder Positive Force. He called it another in-group thing by that Discord click. Mm -hmm. um, now, he might be a little more kind about it now. That was back at the time. But there were lots of people who uh, didn't like it, didn't get it. Um, I do think that the critique of it being somehow in-groupy and exclusive is just not true. Um, because I was as nerdy and as much of an outsider as one could be. I had recently arrived from Montana and, you know, my fashion taste at that time seemed, as I recall, seemed to run in the direction of, I remember actually one outfit very clearly. You know, I've kind of got this nerdy, you know, uh, kind of uh, grad school hairdo and glasses. Um, and then what I have the dead skin. Then, and then, well, you know, you look like you're reasonably well coiffed. You're not like sticking out in jagged spikes <laughs> yeah, yeah. or like shaved off parts of your hair. And you know, you look kind of, you know, I, what they call norm core now. Yeah. But then I remember wearing a dead Kennedy's like Jesus and the Cross of Money shirt, and then blue denim bell-bottom trousers. Now, what the hell? What kind of weird creature is this? <laughs> but I think because I was so clearly earnest, you know, like I wasn't trying to be anything other than what I was, I think it did impress people generally because they, whether they thought I was a kook or not, they felt, well, the guy's heart is in the right place. So, um, uh, I will also say that I feel like some of the folks 
felt threatened by Revolution Summer. There were bands, um, and bands are tremendous bands, bands like Marginal Men and Government Issue in particular, um, who kind of were from that original wave. The, you know, John Stab, you know, who's a good friend and someone I really like, you know, said to me once, you know, because there's this kind of ugliness growing around hardcore that, you know, Minor Threat clearly was a magnet for at a certain point. The shows are getting so big and everyone's taken over the stage and, you know, and and it seems like it's less about, like, the genuine frenzy generated by seeing a band that you love and you're really into the song, more like just kind of show off. Mm-hmm. Like, sh- let's get up on the stage and show everyone how well I can skank or dive and, you know, and... I don't give a fuck about the music. I just want to show off. And that destroys the, you know, this radical egalitarianism at the heart of this this punk rock idea gets destroyed when people aren't responsible. Um, And that freak show, that's what John called it, um, when Minor Threat um, broke up, they moved on to the next band, which would be Government Issue um, or Marginal Man. Less so with Scream, I would say, because Scream was always a little bit of a different animal. It was uh, more of a, a, there was always a radical poli- political vision there. Um, and it was less kind of this uh, personal uh, kind of, the thing that DC originally was kind of known for, like more personal inter- introspective lyrics. Ironically, given that Bad Brains are such a radical band, and given that DC, of course, later would have this radical political reputation, but there was actually a, a significant critique of politics um, in a lot of the early. Um, DC hardcore bands like they didn't want to do just another fucking Reagan sucks song mm-hmm. you know it's like ah oh my god you know, how many of these do we have to have and that was the kind of there there was you could call it elitist or you could call it like you know uh, you know having high standards they were like we don't want to just be another paddle thrash band uh, singing about Reagan however the fact is that what had happened in that scene was becoming ugly. Um, and, you know, John obviously is critiquing. He's calling it a freak show. He's also from stage uh, kind of deriding Revolution Summer, saying that, you know, government issue is issuing in uh, degradation winter. Um, and, you know, there's something, there's this... You know, there's sort of maybe a, a pain of being feeling like they're being excluded or critiqued from it. But the fact was, you were doing this thing. You were you were collaborating with this. You weren't standing up on stage and saying, "Stop being a freak show." And why weren't why weren't why wasn't John or some of the other folks? They didn't want to lose their audience. Mm-hmm. And that was what was so I think great about these bands, certainly about Ian. You know, it's like they didn't care. They wanted to do something that made sense to them, that they could be proud of. And anyone was invited if you shared that vibe. If you didn't share it, then there's going to be confrontation. It was going to be, you know, nonviolent confrontation, hopefully, but... Yeah, it was a state of a lot of the Fugazi shows that I saw, was that because they drew so many people, there was a, a contingency of individuals who wanted to run around in a circle and hit each other in the head, and then there was this ceaseless, you know, Ian telling them to stop doing it and making fun of them, which was... You know, sometimes amusing, but sometimes you know, really sometimes kind of it became a big drag for them, certainly. But yeah. that's the that's that Revolution Summer spirit, which is like, we don't want punk to be a cartoon. We're gonna stand up and we're gonna fight back. And guess what? Fugazi became the band that didn't let people have fun. Boo fucking boo! <laughs> I mean, come on. 
you know, if you don't like them, then don't come to the show. Um, you know what they're about. It's just like people who came to the Rites of Spring shows wanting to slam dance. Give me a break. The, the folks, you know, you know they, they speak. So anyway, enough about, we're kind of getting ahead of the story, but I think the point is that Revolution Summer is a reinvention of punk and, and it's not a, of DC punk in particular, it's, it's not, there's no clear, like, set of, uh, you know, uh, there's no party line exactly, but there's a lot of different ideas floating around. It, again, you get this sense of extraordinary possibility. It is clearly very political in, you know, in a, a public protest sense. Um, uh, it's also very personal in the sense of, you know, uh, you know, introspective lyrics and also wrestling with one's own lifestyle, you know, kind of wrestling with a straight edge thing, verging into, you know, kind of the vegetarianism, animal rights, vegan stuff. And it's artistic, too. It works on all those levels. It's blasting apart the prison of, you know, hardcore, hard DC core. Um, and... Uh, without it, I just don't see DC having the global impact, the, at least the full global impact that it ended up happening. Um, and of course, for me, as someone who was, you know, both participating in it on one hand and starting to collect materials to write down the story, I mean, it was it was an extraordinary. Well, it was an extraordinary challenge. <laughs> because well, at, at the time that you, do you write about it or do you participate? Um, and you know, I'm on the ultimately on the sound of participating, but I also wanted to write about it because it mattered, and it does matter. At the time that you were sitting about initially compiling the book, ha- had there been any other books detailing punk scenes at that time? Because subsequently, there have been several, but that seems rather early for books about yeah the scene. Yeah, well, and if, if Band in DC is a significant book, I mean, there there are some books. Yeah. I mean, I was very inspired by Carolyn Kuhn's book, 1988, The New Wave Punk Rock Explosion. In fact, if you go back to the original flyer I made for, <laughs> for that punk talk I gave in Montana, you'll discover that I, that I took stuff literally cut out of the book. Now, the, 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 I, would, that I would you know, rethink this now because there are, the, the, I mean, even then there started to be things called Xerox machines. There, they actually had just come about and um but i literally cut out like pictures and you know like the lettering from there to make that flyer so there were books that did reflect on it to some degree um uh and then not long after i started working on it of course the 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 book that i think is the uh kind of the the great achievement of of kind of the english punk writing which is england's dreaming that's a great Um, john savage john savage's book came out um, I, Cynthia Conley had started work on Banner DC about the same time I started on Dance of Days and initially we thought about working together but then it became clear two things one is that our visions were a little bit different which could have worked anyway because you know her book the, is light on text it's more it is. picture heavy it is yeah. um, the other thing was that clearly the story was still unfolding and I wanted to capture the story so this was going to take a while and you will notice if if you listen closely that I first say out loud that I want to do this book in mid-1986. The book emerges in 
like 2008. May of 2001. Yeah. So it's 15, full 15 years from when I say I wanted to do it and when it finally is out. Is the book still in print, by the way? It is, yeah. Okay. Akashic Books uh, keeps it in print and it continues to sell, um, which is great. Um, but the reason, there were a couple of reasons uh, why it took so long. One, the story kept unfolding. And two, there is this wrestling with me because on one hand I am an artist, a scholar, you know, and, and I, I want the craft to be, I have high standards for the craft. Um, on the other hand, I'm also an activist. And so when it was, I was having to choose during these years about writing about it or participating, I by and large just participated. I did gather stuff, obviously I had experiences that would help inform this. Um, because I'm there for, I mean, the first part of the book, I'm not there. And, and so I can be much more kind of objective and just kind of just the facts kind of thing with, you know, a reasonable an analysis, an important analysis. Um, but then the second half of the book was more difficult because I'm part of it. And so I initially when we were, I was, did the rough draft, I was like, how because the tone of the first part is going to be quite different from the tone of the second part. And fortunately, um, in the process of me just setting it aside um, in 1995, um, after the rough draft was completed um, and in, had plans to put it out with Martin Sprouse on Pressure Drop Press, um, I just stopped and, and just let it sit. And partly was because, once again, I had moved to this I need to participate in this. I had spent much of the last two years in a basement working on this. And I, it got it done, but it also left me feeling like I was a fraud because I was writing about stuff, but I, was, I didn't feel like I was you know, doing it. So I wanted to get back to doing it. Um, but during, the other, during this time, how were you supporting yourself? What, were your, what sort of jobs were you working? Uh, well, I mean, you know, minimum wage jobs. Um, basically and I was living very cheaply at one point I rented the hallway and you know some people I had earlier rented the basement and the basement was pretty you know pretty spartan because there was a window out and uh, the water went in and out I mean like a day like today you know things would have been floating in there so I actually had to put in pallets so that the water could come in and go out without you know disturbing things I woke up a couple times literally in water <laughs> when I was sleeping and I'm like huh this doesn't feel right <laughs> um, and then I brought in the pallets and that was fine um, and that cost me a hundred dollars a month um, but then I was like you know I'm living a little too luxuriously I have to really pare back um, and so uh, I rented the hallway um, and that was fifty dollars a month and I at the end of the it was kind of a hallway wide hallway with a bookshelf dividing it so I was kind of Kind of obscured from anyone going up and down. This was in a group house of some Yeah, in sort? positive force. Did house. you consider the you know the, the toilet for fifty dollars or something? Twenty five. Toilet was too much traffic. Um, uh, but uh, this I had a little bit of privacy and I had my little workspace uh, there too. Um, uh, but I was working at the Arlington Co-op, a cooperative food store that's not far for a lot of this time. And then when I went, I ultimately went to Montana for six months and there I was mostly just house sitting my parents house they were gone 
they're gone part of the year um, because they had retired from farming and they would go to warmer climates, generally Arizona, and they had an RV, and so I would be there um, just in this house by myself, which was actually great because I was cut off. <laughs> the isolation which had once drove me to the edge of suicide was now uh, saving me. Oh, yeah, live in the city for a while. I, I'm sure that's probably very appealing. Because, yeah, I was, uh, I was really able to focus and, and take good care of myself because I wasn't really taking good care of myself at a certain point there. Um, well, com- so, coming from uh, a working class background and, and being around in D.C., probably many people who came from far more affluent uh, background. So, do you feel any sort of disconnect between people who were adopting the lifestyles of being poor and, you know, like uh, street punks and such, and then you know you're coming from something of a more solidly working class rather than academic or from government or you know well, rather, sure. rather cushy? No, absolutely. I mean, you certainly felt that, um, uh, and you recognize. I recognize, you know, a certain difference in our backgrounds. Um, and you know that would be sometimes the thing said about some of the gunner punk folks is like they've got rich parents in the suburbs and they come down here and act like you know blah 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 on the other hand you know some of those families are genuinely dysfunctional like i'll give you one example one of the early members of positive force um uh basically you know her i'm trying to remember her father was abusive and her mother was a drug addict. Now they're both, you know, kind of functioning in this upper middle class way, um, you know, cushioned by that privilege. But she couldn't take it. She ran away. Um, her two other sisters were in, in institutions, so you can see like the degree of dysfunction. Now she came down to live in Dupont Circle, right near, not far from. There was a big street punk scene there. I'll give you an example of kind of how messed up things were because, you know, her mother came to look for her. And the mother came down, she'd heard that she was around DuPont Circle, and it just happened that that night when she came down, she wasn't, you know, uh, Mary, Mary's her name, wasn't there. Um, so her mom did, I am told, what any good concerned mom would be about her runaway teenager. You know, it's like, oh, she's not here. Uh, do you know where I can buy some drugs? <laughs> it's like, come on. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't want to... I don't know, you know, what people's lives are. There would definitely be some of that feeling, um, and I definitely am glad for my background because I, 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 can, I don't feel bad about living with little that sounds a little funny now because I you know I'm a homeowner now and I have kids and you know I have a job that pays me uh, you know not extravagantly but more than I ever if I didn't have kids in a house then I would probably you know I mean I've got I get sixty thousand dollars a year why don't we just say that and to me, at one point, like at one point, I remember turning down offers of raises <laughs> because I was like, no, I don't need that um, from the place I used to work. Uh, now I do. It's a different type of work. It's a different situation. And $60,000 is solidly middle class, although in D.C. you might still, uh, still hard. Um, but I remember, I mean, you can actually go back because Social Security sends out these statements of, you know, your earnings, you know, your, 
each year. And you will see in the years in my thing that essentially uh, there's no recorded income for a couple of years, mm-hmm. which means that I'm working, uh, you know, I'm living very simply and I'm working off the books. Um, which is what I did, and you know, I I it, I didn't care, um, you know, because it helped me do what I thought I needed to do, um, and that's you know how Dance of Days got written, really. I mean, part of it I don't want to claim, you know, I'm in the base of my parents' house is kind of you can say is oh that's kind of silly, you're just kind of leeching off them. Fair enough. Part of that time, I was definitely not in my parents' basement. I was in the hallway, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or in the in you know with the sea creatures in the basement. Um, so uh, that was, you know, I don't. I, it was it I, it. I I did what I needed to to get this thing that I thought was immensely important done, and done in the way that I felt like it needed to be done because. You know, if you're writing about a scene like DC, what is the point? You know, why do people care about DC? Because DC doesn't settle for mediocre. They set their sights high. And so that's a high standard to live up to. And especially when you're writing about a lot of people you you respect, many of whom are your friends, and you're writing about something you really care about. Um, how do you do it? And I will say that I was really lucky because um, other people, the, my rough draft is out there. People can, if there's a few copies floating around, I have one. Um, and you can compare what was to what ultimately comes out. Um, I think that you will find it to be considerably stronger than my rough draft, partly because we found a way to sort out the tone issue. And the, the way to do it was um, a, uh, someone who is significant in the DC scene as a, a writer um, and at the beginning as a participant but mostly as a writer uh, Mark Jenkins became my co-author and then not only did we have someone who had first-hand experience early on which I lacked but we also had somebody who didn't who wasn't a participant in that last part he's very clearly he is chosen his path he is a a rock critic if you will and so he keeps his distance from there and so that helped because now we had to write it all in one tone I think it's written uh, I am proud of how it came out I'll just leave it at that and then we could each write little uh, asides when we wanted to share something that was personal and I think it made a much stronger book Um, Mark's contribution is Immense in in that, um, and and I'm really glad for it because again, we wanted to make a book that was worthy of the story. We wanted to make a book that was not simply about the DC punk scene, but an example of what it was about. And that's why you know the money, the royalties that I got were intended to go to you know community work, and with did go there after a fashion <laughs> although there's a long story about how the original publisher was essentially going under uh, when the book was coming out and how we had to put a bunch of money in and the royalties then helped the publisher keep from who going published under. the first the original thing. version is published by soft skull right, press that's, yeah that's the version that i have is there a difference between this 
that version in subsequent editions? Subsequent editions are better. <laughs> I mean, have you, have you tinkered with the physical? Do I need to get another copy of the same book? Or uh, I would encourage you to, um, but that might be just because we like to sell books. No, it's not because of that, but because. Uh, First of all, one of the things that we wanted to do in the original book was an index. An index, yeah, yeah, index isn't there. Not there yeah. um, I think it's fair to say that even though I liked very much the person who did the layout on the cover of the original edition, I don't think it worked in the end. The cover does not work to me, and that, that upsets me. Also, the large format... There were pluses and minuses. I think we were able to fix a few things in the text. We were able to get an index in there. Um, in the different editions, we put in uh, first a, a new chapter in the edition that came out in 2003. And then when we did a, a yet another edition, uh, we kind of put that chapter on the internet and then did a new chapter, which all in all, I'm more happy with than the original kind of added on chapter. Partly because the original added on chapter was kind of trying just to bring the story up to date, which you have to do really fast, and it's like you can't do the same sort of analysis. And also, quite frankly, even though the story is a powerful story still, I think we had captured a certain narrative arc. Mm -hmm. And the narrative arc is simply this the story starts with kids rebelling not only against their society but particularly against people who were there you know the, the teenage rebels before them but who had turned into well not entirely but you know there were high level high profile examples of for example Jerry Rubin going from like this super hardcore radical to being a you know a, a Wall Street you know uh, you know, thousand dollar suit guy. Yeah, to being a corpse um, after that. Yeah, and and just in general, you felt like um, the '60s rebellion had failed, um, and you didn't like some of the '60s rebellion. I mean, I'm inspired by it, but I look back and it's like my heroes. Who were my heroes from the '60s rock rebellion? Oh, Jim Morrison. He's dead. Jimi Hendrix. Oh, he's dead. Oh, Janis Joplin, she's dead. Um, you know, they should have been straight edge. <laughs> they would have been around. Well, but long. you can see, you can see the beginnings of of straight edge. And we talked earlier about why would you do this? Well, partly because you see what this idea of drugs equaling liberation has done. It's killing people. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not to say that I agree with the drug war or even necessarily with the drugs being illegal because th that's a whole nother big mess. But do I think it's a good idea for people to use drugs? And I, when I talk about drugs, I'm talking particularly about alcohol and cigarettes because they are the major destructive forces in our society. Cigarettes are what killed my dad with lung cancer. My mom has emphysema. You know, these fucking corporations who didn't give a shit about, you know, what their products do to people. It just brought them money, so they they were happy to sell them, and they continued to be happy to sell them. Well, fuck them. I don't want them to have a cent of my money. And uh, Well, do you feel that there's anything potentially advantageous about 
say, psychedelic drugs if, uh, for the purpose of expansion of mind or uh, perceiving things in a different manner? Um, you know, it's, and it's, have a, you had it's any a long, experience? it's a long discussion. It's a long discussion to be had. The first thing I'll say is that obviously some people have, believe or have actually had positive experiences as a result of using drugs. Have you used any drugs before? Not really. I mean, I have, I, I, I'm a Catholic now, so I have wine with mass. Um, occasionally I've had a, a sip of wine or something here and there. Never been drunk, never smoked pot, never used any of these other things. Never thought it was a good idea. Um, now, back to you know, the drug question. Joe Strummer has said, or did say when he was alive, that it was using psychedelic drugs that woke him up to the emptiness of the middle class life that he was leading. Like he was in English public schools. I mean, he wasn't from like a super affluent background, but it was kind of middle class. And public schools in England are the opposite of here. They're like the fancy private, private schools. School, um, and uh, and he was like, I took LSD and I saw how meaningless this was. Um, and then he goes on and does various things, ultimately coming into the clash. And you know, in the first part of my punk story, the clash is if you were to pick out all the bands, you'll go through them all. Who is the single most in influential? It's The Clash. It's Joe Strummer in particular, because he's really the soul, the vision of the band. No offense to any of the other folks, tremendous folks in there. But So in one sense, you could say, wow, well, you indirectly were inspired to do what you do by somebody who, you know, in his story, his understanding of his life, put psychedelic drugs at that spot. And fair enough. Having said that, um, I just think that, you know, we don't need them. Um, and, and it's dangerous to mess with these things. It's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, playing with matches. Now, I will admit, I set a building on fire once <laughs> playing with matches. You know, people and told me, don't play. And you were not on LSD at the time. <laughs> no, I was, like, I was a kid and I, you know, I was just curious. Um... Uh, and you know, people all around me said, don't play with matches. It's like, I didn't. And I think that's how kids are often about, you know, alcohol and drugs. They're, they're seeking an experiment, you know, an experience that expands their horizons, and, and it probably will. I think you could get that same experience without doing it. Um, and, and the danger is immense um, because I think that's what's so bad about this kind of compulsory drug taking. You see, that's the thing that I'm really against because the youth culture then, and I would say the youth culture today is largely based around compulsory drug taking and compulsory sex. <laughs> I mean, it's like you're not, uh, you know, you're not a real teenager unless you're doing this. This is the center of social activity. This is how you're showing you're growing into adulthood. And, you know, in many ways, the straight society sets it up to be that way. Um, sit down with your son when he's 16 or whatever, 18 or whatever, and have a beer with him. That's how men bond. I think it's bogus. Um, and and uh, and it, but you know, for some people, that that's 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 very real. I will say that um, 
many people can do that and not have their lives destroyed, there will be a very significant subset, not a majority, but a subset, whose lives will be terribly scarred by that fact. Because if you have, as my family clearly seems to have, a predisposition towards addiction, then of course you don't want compulsory like taking of drugs. Why? Because that is what's going to activate your addiction. And why on earth do you need to do it? And of course you don't have to be addicted. I mean, just you know, pick up the newspaper every day, and you know, you know, or look in the internet. You know, kids are dying all the time because they're out driving and they're drunk. I mean, two kids just this past weekend killed run into a tree out in Maryland coming from these parties which are based around what? Drinking. And it's like, why? Why do we do this? I don't know. I don't know. This clearly goes back in human history. The bottom line is that you have to take a stand one place or another. For me, it was it was obvious that there were lots of negatives to this. Um, I didn't see a lot of positives other than I might be more accepted by folks. To me, I didn't care about that because it was more important for me to feel like I was my own person and that I wasn't just going along with the crowd, uh, that I had to have a good reason to do something. Um, and, you know, as I grew older um, and the context changed, you know, because, you know, there's those intense years, like those teenage years and maybe into the mid 20s, where you know, these things are so pervasive and there's so much at the center of, you know, social engagement. And then it kind of shifts, you know, people, you know, often set that stuff aside. Some people never do. Um, and, uh, and it, you know, destroys them. I would say, as someone who studied Joe Strummer's life, I think Joe Strummer was an addict. And, and I say that with love. Many people I love are addicts. Um, and he would have been so much better off if he had not used drugs. Um, I would say particularly alcohol and pot, but, um, you know, who knows? Who knows? I will say that as I grow older, it's been important for me to, even though the context has changed, to keep the stance because why? You know, there's still kids out there. I mean, now I have kids myself, and I will say that I'm glad that I'll be able to tell them that I've never been drunk. I'm glad to tell them that I never was high, um, that I was able to find great things in life without that, through things that could transform my consciousness as much without entering into that you know, danger zone. Um, uh, things like music or, or books or you know, uh, other people. Um, the same thing, I mean, this is, and we're kind of meandering off, but this might as well be addressed because it's one of the, the, the great uh, things that's discussed when people want to criticize straight edge. They're like, oh, they're monks, you know, they don't, they don't fuck, you know, they don't have sex. It's like anti-sex. And even people who should know better from the DC scene have brought this up, like, I won't mention names. Okay, I will. Someone I love, Pete Stahl, brought this up in an interview. Why, I don't know. Because Pete knows better than anybody. You know, this is back in the 80s. Maybe he didn't know. But when Ian MacKay wrote the song, Out of Step, saying, don't drink, I, you know, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't fuck, at least I can fucking think. What is he doing? Is he saying that he's not having sex now or ever? 
there's a clear distinction in his mind between having sex and fucking. Fucking is seen by him as something that's compulsory. It's not about this other person or this this uh, way to try to communicate something to another person or share something with another person. It's about um, you know checking a, a box on your like I am an adult. I am not a virgin or you know I have this many conquests, which is t- I I'm not I haven't been a teenager for 40 years, mind you, almost 40 years. But I get the sense that it hasn't changed that much um, and that young men are still more like pushed towards having sex to prove that you're... Um, and young women are... Let's just say their reputations are more easily besmirched, which is a total double standard. Um, and so, ironically, Straight Edge, which has been seen, and this is in Ian's mind, Straight Edge, which has been seen as sometimes as this chauvinistic, like, uh, sexist thing, like putting down women, like they're tempting men to have sex. Give me a break. That's not that at all. Actually, one of uh, the, the Ian's peers at the time, Anne Bonifed, um, you know, really put it in context of like what straight edge meant to her at the time. And she's not like someone who walks around with X's on her hands or, you know, like his, you know, youth crew or something. She was just, you know, a teenager at that time. And there was this general sense among this group of people that, you know, alcohol got in the way of things or drugs got in the way of things. And these things, like we wanted a space that was free of all this pressure to do the things that we thought were stupid. Um, and she talked about how, as a young woman, it was so freeing to not be in situations where um, her being wasted and thus vulnerable to exploitation, uh, you know, the straight edge gave her a way to avoid that. And I have so many female friends whose first sexual experiences are when they're totally wasted. It's like they're not even really consenting. They're not even really aware of what's going on. Um, and so in that sense, it was, it was a way to offer another option. And, uh, and it, it meant it for men as well as for women. It wasn't like this, you know, I am in training for, you know, whatever, football, and I'm going to abstain from drugs and sex. No, it wasn't that. It was like, we want people to make their own choices. We want to be free of social pressures. Um, now, ironically, sometimes you can argue that straight edge became a social pressure um, as it became more popular. And maybe it did. In DC, with Ian, with the folks I know, it was never that way. Why was Positive Force House a meat-free, drug-free place? It's like, how stupid would we be to have alcohol or illegal drugs around a place that's set up to be a hive of radical political activity. It's like, are, are we absolutely ignorant of like human reality that the police might not like us and might in fact come after us for underage drinking or something? I mean, it, would, it was practically ridiculous. Now there was a principle too, because we're trying to make a point, but it wasn't like, okay, you have to, you know, we're going to give you a urine test you have to come to a positive force meeting. I mean, to this day, I mean, we just had a meeting. I have no clue. I actually, with a couple of people, I have some clue 
of drug use that they do. Do I care? Not particularly. If I think it's hurting them, I will say something. Um, if it's not visibly hurting them, not messing with what we're trying to do, then you know it's their business. Um, at the time and to this day, I think straight edge is a crucial way to say there is another way. And particularly if you're looking to be a, a youth rebel or, or a revolutionary, you should check it out because the whole point was you will have an edge. You will not be messing up your uh, best weapons, which is your, your intellect, really. Um, I feel we should be begin to draw to a close. I know there's a tremendous amount of time to cover, but there are a few specific questions that I wanted to give you before we we go on. Sure, for, please. For too long. And, and you know, we I've got the time that you got, so. Uh, and so. I feel like Positive Force is is really well covered by the documentary film that came out pretty recently, which folks should see. And, and you've kind of discussed a lot about Positive Force here, anyway. Um, the main thing I would say, just to make sure that it's clear from here, uh, my point is that positive force and the DC punk scene, in my experience of it, you know, there was no party line where you had to do X or had to not do Y. Um, We came together around common concerns. And, uh, and yes, it was certainly a far less drug-saturated or, like, uh, scamming-oriented kind of scene. Um, but that's because we're we're about creation, um, and and a lot of that stuff is is consumption, and you know fine, but just let it go. And we come together, and that's the power to come together across lines of difference, which is so much and more important when you actually start to think about how these, you know, frankly, often quite tiny subcultural or countercultural. Uh, uh, you know, communities are somehow going to have an impact on a broader level because we don't have the power to do it on our own. Um, even if we had all the answers, you know, which we don't, but if even if we did, we had the perfect plan. We need to build with other communities. We need each other. And, and so that means that we have to work across lines of difference um, and offer what we have to offer to the mix but also be willing to be transformed by what other people offer. And, and so that's really important. Um, I think there was something I wrote about positive force in relation to straight edge for um, Gabriel Kuhn's book, uh, Silver Living for the Revolution. Um, and the, the title of it was Building Bridges, Not Barriers. And for me, my experience with straight edge helps me to do that. It doesn't divide me from people. It helps me to be more effective in building bridges because not only is that good for me personally because I am so enriched by it, but it's also important if we want some sort of revolution. Our power comes from our union. All right, so there are two things I wanted to hit on before we hit it and quit it. And the first of the two is you've mentioned that you've had a skepticism of or disdain for religion uh, through your younger life and probably for perhaps a considerable part of your life. But you also mentioned that you are now a practicing Catholic. Um, this is probably quite a lot to explain, but uh, <laughs> as I guess... Fair enough. Um, Anyone want to try? <laughs> in, we in are the, taking entries to explain this apparent paradox. Send them to P.O. Box now. <laughs> unfortunately, it's all on you. But um, I mean, if you could just explain 
as concisely as possible what what you've gone through to go from what you were before and then how you view religion or or God faith yeah now. okay well the first thing I will say is that punk rock has a righteous critique of organized religion I agreed with it when I first encountered it back in the 70s I mean you may recall like the opening lines of Patti Smith saying Jesus Christ died for somebody's sins but not mine um, I agreed with it then and I still agree with it it is not complete though the critique is not the whole story um, and this is what I would say um, I was really marked by my upbringing there were negative parts to it there was the compulsion but there were also really positive parts I mean if you actually look at the life and teachings of Jesus who of course is actually Jewish he's not Christian he is a radical Jew in the Hebrew prophetic tradition um, the guy is extremely admirable very inspiring like the vision of what our world could be like that is expressed there is a revolution so radical I, I don't know if human beings can live it but it's very beautiful I mean I'm uh, talking yeah, uh, forgive me those of you who don't care to hear anything about the Bible I have to refer to it in this regard just to give an example um, Matthew 25 now, I won't go to tell the whole story, but it's the only place in the Gospels, you know, the stories about Jesus' life and teachings that, that we have, um, where, you know, a, a presumed last judgment would entail. And what are people judged on? Well, did you shelter the homeless? Did you clothe the naked? Did you feed the hungry? When there was a stranger, did you welcome them? Um, when people were sick, did you visit them? When they were in prison, did you, you know, comfort them? My God, wow, that's what you're going to be judged on. But it's even more heavy duty than that because what Jesus says there is supposed to have said anyway, you know, who knows? There's no videotape of him. Um, is whatever you did for these people, you did for me. Which means that you did it for God, because that's what Christians believe, right? That Jesus is somehow God. He's human, but he's also God. I know it's a little heady. But, wow. You mean we are supposed to find God the most powerful, most precious, most extraordinary thing in life among sick people, among prisoners, among the homeless, among the hungry, the throwaway people, the ones that our world says don't matter at all. You know, probably it's their own fault. You know, why didn't they start up uh, internet, you know, enterprise? They could have, you know. Why are they hungry? It's their fault. You know, that's you know, the voice of the world. 
But he's saying, that's where I am. My God, what does that mean? What would our world look like if that's how we, you know, how we lived? I've never run into a more powerful vision of a transformed world than that. And it's ancient. I mean, this is, this is something dating back a couple of millennia. Um, and so those kinds of stories made an impact on me. I mean, uh, I would say, you know, and I often describe myself as a would-be revolutionary because I, you know, I've written a book about, you know, revolution without illusion. You know, it is a concept I've wrestled with a great deal. And it is an immense, you know, sort of uh, commitment to try to be that. Um, well, what but I've never seen, I've never seen something more powerful than, than that image. And I would say, you know, one, one of the things where I started to change was actually Revolution Summer because I had been very alienated by my experience, but I'd also been very marked by it. I mean, that is the root, taproot in many ways of my would-be revolutionary politics. Jesus' life and teachings. Um, uh, and, you know, the American revolutionary tradition. We talked a little bit about that earlier. Now, I actually, I went to Central America in, during Revolution Summer. I wasn't here in D.C. For, the for much of the technical Revolution Summer. It's here at the beginning, here at the end of it. In the middle, I'm in Central America. In the middle of insane violence and terror and poverty. It was my first time outside of the United States, other than Canada. And, you know, where I grew up, Canada was really pretty much the same as us. <laughs> they just had a different currency and, you know, different political leaders. But, you know, they talked like us. and We talked like them. You know, we listened to Canadian radio um, and blah, blah. So we actually listened to more Canadian radio than where I grew up than we listened to American radio. Um, so I know quite a bit about Bachman Turner Overdrive, the Guess Who, you know, Rush. Harry Jacks, you know, Rush, etc. Because they were, you know, they were, they were pushed on Canadian radio by government order. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so that um, my experience there was wrenching. Um, I was studying Central America. I knew a textbook knowledge inside and out. I went there with a lot of arrogance, the arrogance of, on one hand, this radical counterculturalist who has a very strong critique of organized religion. I went there as a hotshot grad student, you know, like, I know this stuff. <sighs> I'm sorry. When you're looking at guns in books, you're looking at dead bodies in books, it's not the same as being there. Um, and I was pretty protected by my white skin, but um, the terror that was there and the extraordinary poverty that was there um, just broke my heart. Um, and it, what broke my heart more was knowing that unfortunately U.S. policy was part of what, why it was like this. Now, what did I do while I was there? <laughs> I tried not to get killed. <laughs> well, I did some things that my, my fellow you know, people I was there with uh, thought was crazy. But, uh, but you know, looking back at it, it was, you know, not that much. Were you in El Salvador? 
I was mostly in Guatemala, I was in El Salvador, and I was in Nicaragua and Honduras during those two months. Um, Guatemala was the worst of them. El Salvador was bad, but Guatemala was worse. Um, and I, I actually, there's a, a memory I have of going to who I went there I mean and on paper what am I doing there I'm there to study Spanish I'm there to do research for because that's why I'm studying grad school um, but I'm also there to see this place I've learned all this about so I go to the archdiocese there to talk to them about the in, in Guatemala uh, to talk to them about the the I, I you know the terrible violence I mean later people would describe what happened in Guatemala as genocide I think that's probably true. Um, a couple hundred thousand people died, most of them Mayan Indians in the highlands. Um, and it's a long story, but the short version is that I go in and talk to them, and they're very circumspect, but they make it very clear when I bring it up that the source of the violence is the government. That's the kind of thing that would get you killed there. The only people who could say that without immediately knowing that you were on a death list were folks in the church. Now, that didn't mean they didn't end up on the death list. <laughs> we'll get to that. Um, anyway, I come out of there, out of my meeting, and I don't know what had happened. I don't know whether the, the, the Guatemalan police were aware I was there. I had worked for the senator from Montana, Max Bacchus, and I was in part, I was still an advisor to his office around this stuff, and so that was coming there in that that regard. But I come back out, I don't know what's going on, but I come out and now there's a dead body just out back of the archdiocese, you know, their, their cathedral. I, you know, it catches your eye. But what caught my, the next split second is like the dead body's right there, and standing right there are, you know, is a policeman in mere sunglasses getting his shoes shined. Um, not doing anything about the dead body. My guess is he probably killed this person and dumped him there. Why? Show the fucking church who's the boss. You know, that's their attitude. And later they would actually kill an archbishop in that country. Um, and they killed scores of, you know, church workers and priests and nuns and so forth. But anyway, what did I do? I looked at the body, I looked at the police, I got out of there. And I didn't talk about it for like a year, two years. Um, first time I talked about it, ironically, was um, at a, a punk rock show when I was very moved by what was happening um, because I was embarrassed. I was scared to do something. I mean, well, I could have gone up to the police officer and said, what's, what's happened here? You know, should we get an ambulance or, you know, whatever? I've been told, whatever you do, don't go to a police officer if you need help. <laughs> um, you know, to the extent anyone would say anything, and they would say very little. If you brought up politics, they would try to change the subject for obvious reasons. Um, and so I felt pretty humbled by that and embarrassed, frankly. I mean, I don't know what I could have done, but I could have done something more than just walk away. 
and not talk about it. And what made me so inspired and, and ashamed was to see how people, and I was, you know, the church groups were the ones that I, with the networks that still existed. Um, and so they were showing me around. It's like, these people are standing up, you know, gently but firmly standing up every day to this. This is what they live with. They know they could be killed at any time and that there would be almost no hope that anyone would be held accountable because the impunity there just immense. I mean, you could do almost anything if you were a police officer or army guy or just rich. You'd never be held accountable. But they just did it. They were doing. They were living the life that I wanted to, that I you know, sang about in my song, if you want to put it in DC punk terms. Um, a life of courage and integrity um, and taking a stand. And so I came away pretty shaken from that. Um, you know, I continued my activism back in, in, in D.C., but I think a seed was planted, which was, I want what they have. I want to have the courage to do what they do. Um, and, uh, and so I would say that's the beginning of my just, you know, voyage back into Christian community. Now, I will say my vision of Christian community is radically at odds with the popular vision that people have, particularly in countercultural circles. You know, the vision of the moral majority or Christian coalition or, you know, the right-wing homophobe, you know, nuts. Um, I wrote it. The first thing that actually comes out of it is I wrote a, a uh, fanzine article called Jesus Was a Commie Punk um, in which I compared his politics to the politics of MDC and the Dead Kennedys I think Minor Threat got mentioned but I don't know how that got in there but uh, but uh, you know and it, partly it's a joke it's, it's, a provo- it's, a, it's a provocation it's a provocation to everyone because generally Christians wouldn't be excited about hearing you know their Lord and Savior called a commie punk, because that doesn't sound like a compliment, although I meant it as such. Um, punk rockers would be like, what the fuck is this Jesus shit? Get me out of here. I don't care. I'm a punk. You know, I say what I think. Um, and uh, so, uh, I'll bring this around. And so, uh, you know, there was just kind of a natural progression, particularly when I started working in the inner city here, because again, um, what did I see? A lot of these religious folk who I disdained were out there doing the, the, the really backbreaking, unglamorous work of what you might call revolution. Um, it doesn't mean that everybody has to become that, but, you know, that's what I grew up with. Um, it still moved me, it made sense to me, and then when I entered, particularly this one single church who I was suggested to go to, I went there, it must have been 1996, so it's another decade of, you know, kind of my journey. And I come in, and there are two things I see right away, or experience right away. First thing is, they have this insane you know, gospel choir, like this African-American gospel music, like with serious, like, boom, behind it, you know? (laughs) And the spirit, as a punk rocker, I know the spirit moves better with a backbeat. 
Um, and this and is not a Catholic church. I it is a Catholic okay. church. It's an African American Catholic church. It's actually where we are family would be born. Uh, you know, about a decade later, not quite a decade later. Um, and I'm like, wow, they got some passion. And the next thing I notice as I look around is like a dozen people I know from the community work that I've been doing for the last decade. And what that told me was that I'd come to a place where people didn't, you know, they were serious. For them, faith wasn't something you, you brought up to make other people feel bad. It's something that sustained you to do the work to transform this hurting world. And... Uh, and it fed my, my spirit, uh, and it still does. I mean, things change, you know, my attitude or my relationship to things change, but it, 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 in its way, it, it is analogous for me to my experience in the punk community, which also has, by and large, fed my soul. Now, there's always negative things about the punk community. There's always negative things about the church community. One of my great lessons is there ain't no perfect nothing nowhere. <laughs> and so if you find something that speaks to you, that helps you kind of rise up and be the person that you feel in your heart you're, you're, you really want to be, that you're really meant to be maybe even, then you, you honor that. And, and you don't question, I mean, you always question things here and there, but you don't question the, the reality of that because you feel it. You don't have to explain it to anyone. You don't have to convince anyone of anything. You know, just like when I saw Rites of Spring the first time. I didn't have to, you know, I don't have to sit here and tell you, like, that my life was changed by that. It's kind of pointless to do it. You weren't there. You know, maybe your life would change by similar things. Who knows? bands I never heard um, it was real to me and I don't apologize for it and I also don't you know not out there trying to convert anyone <laughs> to anything other than uh, you know uh, I don't know being their best self okay well I guess we should probably wrap it up and perhaps you could just detail the projects that, or project that you're currently involved in you know the philosophical tenets behind it how it operates just a, a little bit of that so we know where you are today. Sure. Boy, we you've gotten into some... Uh, one of the things I was going to say is that all these things about DC Punk, you know, things I think are the best, have been tremendously controversial. <laughs> you know, Riot Girls, Straight Edge, you know, even Positive Force, Revolution Summer. I mean, you know, emo, even though DC wouldn't claim it. It's like, ah, people hate emo. I, mean, kids, I think people hate kids, what is kids now... Kids in Mexico get chased down by other kids like... You fucking emo. Well, I think I think there's a different emo. I think the emo, as people understand it now or a few years ago, is very far removed from the 90s out of hardcore concept of emo, which was a completely different animal and um, a more and, genuine Yeah, animal. And, and fair enough. And the good thing about it is that, uh, I mean, fine, it should be controversial. Why? Because it's not the normal thing. It is going to mess with people. It's trying to reach past what is to what could be. So controversy, I'm fine with it. Um, I will. I say that simply because, as a matter of fact, we've talked about extremely controversial things in this. <laughs> things I don't talk about very much, you know, like Christian faith or straight edge and its relationship to sexuality. And you know, um, can anything good come from drugs? Um, 
So uh, hopefully that means it's a good interview that keeps people's attention. To me, um, it's always better than a 15-second soundbite <laughs> with a talking head. Yeah, well, and, and I, 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 like I said, I'm a punk, so I like stirring things up a bit, you know, get people thinking and keep myself thinking. So back to front. Um, so I think one of the, the way I would start this is that I do believe that punk is something that is eternally relevant. I don't think it's a teenage phase. It's a way of living your life that is very demanding, but also very rewarding. Um, and so for me, as I've gone from being like a teenage punk of my weird, nerdy way, to being now a 50-something punk, you know, AARP bait, as I sometimes say, it's like, how do you keep it real? You know, how, how does, how, what is, it's like, uh, you know, religious people I say, what is God asking of me now? Or people who kind of use different metaphors, like, what does love require of me? That's actually a DC punk quote, but I'll let you figure out from where. What does love require? Um, um, what does punk require? You know, what does punk ask of me? <laughs> um, and and I think the answer is that it asks you to keep growing. Um, when I was a teenage punk, it was about survival, finding out who I was, survival and identity. Um, and fortunately, as I grew, it became something about more than just affirming myself. It became about creating a society where everyone can have the space to figure out who they are and to try to be true to themselves and 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 of course that's freedom but there's also this responsibility because you can't just do whatever the hell you think you want to do without considering how it impacts other people and so you know freedom as we are often reminded uh, is not free um, uh, and so, you know, for me, in the beginning of the DC thing, Punk told me, don't take this route, you know, this thing that's called success. You gotta, you know, you gotta look again, you gotta dig deeper. Um, and so that's what brought me to Positive Force. Um, uh, and it was, you know, the experience of being a punk in DC in the mid to late 80s that turned my attention towards the crying issue in this community, which was not unconnected to what I experienced in Central America, or actually what, in a certain way, I experienced, um, but was kind of blinded to, um, back home on the Fort Peck Indian Reservation, which was there were a lot of people dying, slowly or quickly, in this city. It happened that their skin colors generally were not white. And it happened that the people with power seemed not to care very much. And the way you know this is um, that terrible things happen regularly in certain communities and they are not even mentioned in the newspapers. Those terrible things happen in a privileged community and everybody knows about it. it might go around the world 
I, I don't know if people know recently, but in a very ritzy part of Washington, D.C., there was a terrible quadruple murder. Um, and everybody's been, it's been on the front page numerous times, like, who did it, what was the blah, blah, blah. Fortunately, in the Post, just actually today, today, no, it's going to be published tomorrow, I think, uh, someone wrote about another quadruple murder that happened in the D.C. metro area that almost nobody knows about. I didn't know about it, Mr. Revolutionary. Um, what's the difference? These are poor people. Almost the same kind of thing. Kids getting killed. No one understands why someone must have had access. You know. What's the difference? Well, money and skin color. And so what punk started to, and, and we were here, we wanted to be in solidarity with folks like that. You know, like what does the word punk even mean? I mean, actually good question. I'll tell you where I first encountered, well, where in history, where it first shows up that I know. It shows up in Old English, like it shows up in Shakespeare's writings. And at that time, punk meant what? Prostitute. Um, if you go to Measure for Measure, for example, in the, the kind of climactic scene, the word punk is used a couple of times. It's not a compliment. Um, and actually, what does the word punk mean in the African-American history? community historically. It's a slur against gay people. What does it mean in prison? It means somebody who's on the receiving end of homosexual rape. Um, what does it mean where I grew up? Something was punk, it was worthless. If you were a punk, then you were weak and, you know, unimportant. Every where the word is used, it seems to represent things that are not valued by society. It seems to represent actually what? Throwaway people. So if you're taking on the term punk, then the politics and the lifestyle that come out of that suggests a solidarity with those exact people, the ones that society say mean nothing. So for me, how that played out was Especially because in D.C. in the 1980s, um, who were the most disposable people? Well, homeless people on one hand, and I was doing a lot of work um, around that. The very first Positive Force event was a benefit in part for Community for Creative Nonviolence, which was this incredible inspirational group who had kind of were Christian anarchists. They, they grew out of the Catholic worker movement and 60s uh, anti-war movement, um, and they were they, more than anybody in this country, made the word homeless and the issue of homelessness a burning issue. They were extraordinary folks. Um, but then, past that, the mid-80s is the arrival of crack cocaine in Washington, D.C. And with the arrival of crack cocaine comes extraordinary money-making opportunities. And it's a new drug, and it's not controlled by the old channels, by the old, you know, the, the old syndicate, if you will. And so it's tremendously lucrative, and no one knows who's in charge, and it is regulated as a illegal you know, substance. It's regulated by what? Not by government, but by guns. And so this tremendous crisis of murder springs out. They called it a drug war. Um, it was really a war about money. 
Um, and it wouldn't, it would never have happened if you hadn't had a huge population of folks who had been systematically denied access to the, the material promises of the American dream by the workings of our economic and social systems. So that's what's exploding around me, you know, uh, in the aftermath of Revolution Summer. So I wanted to, you know, I'm a good punk. I want to be in solidarity. How do I do it? I was just dumb luck. Stumbled into doing outreach and advocacy with seniors with one group called Emmaus Services for the Aging um, in the late 80s. Uh, actually, I took it on as a part-time job when I started writing Dance of Days. And, uh, and what I found is that it was an extraordinary way for me as a, a, a young and relatively privileged white person to enter the world of what you might call the real DC, which is the African-American DC. Um, I wouldn't quite say that's the whole real DC. There's lots of real DCs out there, but it's a tremendously important part of the story of DC. DC, after all, is the mythical chocolate city. Um, that George Clinton, among others, has celebrated. It's the home of the Black Broadway, um, you know, the Howard Theater, Howard University, you know, all of the stuff that uh, made it one of the most significant, not only most significant African-American neighborhoods, but most significant neighborhoods in this country in general. So I started doing kind of by accident. I just wanted a job that connected me to what was happening in the inner city and that paid me enough so that I could survive while I was writing this book and it just grabbed a hold of me because I started visiting seniors in their own homes. I started learning about the history of DC from the people who lived it, started learning about segregation from people who lived it, about the riots, people who lived it. Started getting to know people whose kids were dying in the street. Um, because over the decade of the mid-80s to the mid-90s in Washington, D.C., about 3,000 people were murdered. We were the murder capital of the country, the highest per capita murder rate. To give you a sense of the carnage, compare Northern Ireland. Now, there are differences, but, you know, tremendous violence in Northern Ireland, um, enough so that their international peace conferences to try to resolve the, the violence there. Northern Ireland has about three times the population of D.C. Northern Ireland's troubles lasted for about three decades. Um, in that time, 3,000 people were killed in Northern Ireland. Terrible loss. In a decade, Washington, D.C. lost about the same number. One-third the population, one-third the time. And this was business as usual as far as many people were concerned. Um, it didn't touch the powerful in Washington, D.C. As it doesn't tend to touch the powerful in any of the cities, it still goes on. You know, the crisis of violence um, and, you know, the irony of, you know, the slogan, Black Lives Matter rising, you know, like, look at Baltimore, 
you know, powerful example of, of people trying to say, yeah, black lives matter. And then look at the violence that's just going on and on and on in Baltimore, but not just there. So, long or short of it is that um, I was lucky to find myself in a place where the community of Washington, D.C. became very real to me. And I had a way to make at least something of a difference and to try to communicate the reality of that immense suffering to my comrades in the punk scene. Um, and I began to recruit folks to come in and help us with our work, you know, bringing grocery bags to seniors, delivering, uh, you know, coming to visit them, uh, helping them clean their houses, making sure they got lawyers, you know, if they needed them, all of this stuff. Um, and uh, so Positive Force and Emmaus became very closely linked. Um, of course, we were reaching out beyond that, too. We we're trying to invite everyone in. The irony is that that's what draws me in, um, this terrible crisis of violence. Um, uh, and now I can still do it. I mean, I've been doing this work, outreach, advocacy, organizing with seniors and low-income seniors in Arizona, D.C. since the late 80s. But the context has changed fundamentally. The context now is, I mean, there's still violence. Um, but it's nothing like it was. What's the new violence, if you will? <laughs> How about this for violence? Imagine that you are an African-American senior who came to Washington, D.C. from the South, as most of them did, fleeing segregation, coming to the capital of the free world to discover segregation. You are here through those years. You see the hope of the Civil Rights Movement, and you also see the devastation of the 1968 riots when Martin Luther King is assassinated. And then you have to live in those ruins and try to build up from there. Um, and then into your community comes crack cocaine and this terrible violence as, as, as folks scramble for, you know, money. And then after these tornadoes have torn through your community, first segregation, then the riots, and then the drug war. And you wake up one morning and you look around and you're like, wow, there are lots of new stores here. Wow, those burnt out buildings are fixed up. Oh, they're fancy apartments or condos, <laughs> which I think was a term probably most people here didn't know <laughs> before there. And it's safer, the garbage is getting picked up, and oh my gosh, you know, the drug gangs are like, they're kind of hanging back. In other words, it's a great place to live! Mm -hmm. Except you can't pay your rent! <laughs> and so the violence is of the operation of the economic system, which uh, allows people to live here in this stigmatized neighborhood facing these extraordinary uh, indignities and dangers and then when those are beaten back face the final indignity which is that you now may have to be leaving your home that you're being forced out and you know there occasionally you'll run into a gentrifying person who is a real jerk and that certainly happens but mostly it's not that people are mean they're not coming in 
coming to your door and saying, you get out, I don't, you don't make enough money. You know, it's just the economic system working. It will force you out unless there are folks who are there to build the kind of grassroots movement that will allow you to remain as you should be able to remain. And that is, you know, kind of the moral outrage that drove me in the first place was like the lives of these people who are dying matter. The lives of these seniors who are being forgotten matter. I can only do so much, but I will take my stand here and I will not be moved. Um, And we are family come straight out of that. On one hand, we are family, and that's where I work now. I worked 15 years for Emmaus, the last 11 years for We Are Family, doing essentially the same kind of thing. The difference is that We Are Family is something I help create um, together with largely low-income seniors in the inner city neighborhood around this Catholic church who I was talking about earlier. Um, uh, in one of the most low-income neighborhoods in the country, a neighborhood scarred by extraordinary violence. Um, and menaced subsequently by the noose of upscale development. Um, And, uh, you know, what we do in one sense is very simple. I mean, the name itself should signal something to you. Because here I am claiming to be a punk, and yet we are family. What is that song? What musical form does it take? The dreaded disco. We swore death to disco, did we not? Mark, you sold out the punk world. You are a disco dude. <laughs> yeah, okay, enough silliness. It was, it's a name that means something in a lot of communities. It means something, and it was, I, I think I suggested it, but the seniors who were there were like, yeah, that's a great name for what we're going to do. Um, and, uh, and I think it is, because what it does is suggest that we are connected in this profound way um, across all these boundaries, race, sex, uh, you, know, you know, race, gender, sexual orientation, class, religion, even language. And that we have to find a way to look out for each other. And so on one hand, what I do is service work. Like today we were out delivering grocery bags to seniors in the rain, you know, 300 and actually I think we did about 375 today because some got missed last week, alas. But that's something that meets a human need. At the same time, we were getting information out to them so that they know their legal rights. And, and you know, we're working on organizing campaigns so that they have power to protect themselves in their homes. But maybe most profoundly, what we're trying to do is bring folks together. Like if you saw the volunteers, we're bringing out a, a wide array of people, you know, punk rockers, <laughs> Girl Scouts, <laughs> churchgoers, um, you know, you name it. Um, and we want to bring, you know, gentrifiers. Technically, I would be considered a gentrifier. Arguably, the whole punk scene here has been a gentrifier, but you know, we'll set that aside for the moment. Uh, with the seniors and the idea is that the ultimate aim of of this and the way we're structured built up from a grassroots foundation of seniors as our frontline ambassadors uh, senior leaders in the community is to be more than a social service agency more than even a justice organization but to be an experiment in building 
um, caring, just, and inclusive community. Uh, a community where there's a place for everybody, where nobody's being forgotten, and where everybody really matters, where we stand up for each other. Uh, ironically, it might look a little bit like where I came from. You know, small town world where no one's anonymous. You know, everybody's in your business, which is a pain in the ass, frankly, sometimes. But it is also the way that, that we kind of look out for each other. Because people are throwaway. Everybody kind of, if you're, if you're gone, you're missed. And that's what we want to do. We want neighbors to look out for neighbors. Not because they agree on what kind of music or fashion they like or have the same skin color or the same sexual orientation or go to the same church or whatever but because we're sisters and brothers in one family and we have to look out for each other. You know, if we don't, you know, who will? Now you could say that that is a long distance from, you know, punk rock. I will admit that at any given day, it might not, it certainly doesn't look like the stereotype of punk rock that's out there. I would argue though, that it's the most punk thing, as I understand punk, that I've ever been involved with. Because it's taking that idea and applying it in a new way that is absolutely relevant to me now as a, I mean, it was relevant to me as a 20-something, but it's even more relevant to me now. These seniors are my neighbors. They are my family. Um, you know, sometimes when we need help with the kids, you know, someone's stuck at work or something and and someone else you know I, I I'm stuck or my wife is stuck and the other one needs to leave you know the seniors will come over and watch our kids for an hour you know the seniors in a section 8 building across the street from us got together and held a, <laughs> a baby shower for us when we adopted our first child and they you know again these are people living at at or below the poverty line. They put their money together and they bought us a crib. That's the crib my son lived in, you know, slept in for four years. That's the crib I put my daughter in, you know, just a little bit ago. Um, that's the revolution to me. We do not live, I mean, on paper, the neighborhood you're in looks like Martin Luther King's dream. It's about one-third white now, about one-third African-American, one-third Latino, and a significant but smaller population of Asian-Americans. But it's like we live in parallel worlds most of the time. We are family blows that apart. That's what we do day by day to bring folks across those boundaries so we can recognize a simple and revolutionary truth. We're family, um, and we have to act that way. Um, I think that's an absolutely perfect way to end the interview. Uh, so thank you very much for talking to me, and more importantly, thank you for what you do. Well, thanks for being interested. Enjoyed chatting with you. Good night. <laughs>